Blog Talk Radio. Hello. This is all new to me. I'm sorry. I think that I'm talking to you. This is Sabrina Giesler. We're here for Collectively Rewilding's first episode. It's dedicated to Lisa Whitaker. She passed away last week. That's why we postponed this beginning show. And she was an amazing rewilder. Her entire life was dedicated to natural pursuits. She was an avid rock hounder, an avid gardener. She taught children all about the outdoor world. She's a perfect example of what we're all trying to accomplish, living our lives in nature. Today's topic, we're going to cover soil. I figured we're starting with our base episode. We'll start with the base of the natural world. Soil is so important and it's so dismissed. It's very rarely talked about. I feel like it's starting to become more of a discussion in the agricultural gardening world. We lose tons and tons, literally thousands upon thousands of tons of topsoil every year. And it also takes thousands and thousands of years to build topsoil. We're literally washing away our future. So when you're looking at the soil around you, if you see hard, baked, cracked soil, that's essentially dead soil. If you're more in an urban setting and you see all the manicured lawns everywhere and these perfectly arranged plots of land, not any of that is what true soil should look like. When you go into a uh, forest that has acreage that has been left undisturbed and you just stick your fingers down into the soil, it easily goes into the soil and you can pull it back and you'll see these huge, dark, beautiful pores of soil. The soil will be airy. It won't be compacted. There will be tons of pockets of air or pores within that soil. And that's what our soil should look like. Even in a desert, there is a natural composition of soil. It doesn't matter where you go, what climate, what uh, topography, the height of the land that you're in, none of that matters. All soil has a structure. You have your uppermost layer, what we call the topsoil, That only goes so far, and then you get into your subsoil structure. When we do the so-called traditional method of farming and gardening, and we start by tilling that soil, we're actually damaging the structure of the soil. There are a lot of people out there talking about no-till gardening right now, and it's something that's been out there for quite a while. I know that when I was in college in Boise, Idaho, I read a book 
that had been written in the 70s. And it's called The Owner Built Homestead by Barbara and Ken Kern. And it was written in, I believe, 76, 77, excuse me, was the copyright that I have. But the original book was written in 74. And they talk about no-till gardening in here and how there was never an actual treatise written to explain why we till the soil. When we till the soil, we're taking the nutrients and the substructure of that soil and we're mixing it up with the topsoil. And what that does is allows that soil to get degraded by wind, water, compaction. It allows soil to be overtaken by invasive weeds because that soil has lost its structure. That is the best soil for something like a dandelion to root itself in. Soil that has lost its natural structure and is broken open. And dandelions are actually all of those types of weeds. They're actually nature's band-aids. Those plants come in and find that damaged soil so that they can put structure back into that soil and hold that soil where it's at until it has gained enough stability to begin the more common plants for that area. So when you see a dandelion in the lawn, that's a positive sign, not a negative sign. These huge expanses of grass are very bad for our arable soil. They're not a natural construct. All natural soil composition, biome composition, has biodiversity. By definition, that is one of the base core premises of what healthy soil looks like, biodiversity. So when you have rolling expanses of lawns or half of your um, home plot in lawn, you are fighting against nature and you're fighting against healthy soil. When you fight to keep that lawn immaculate and you cut the grass and then you bag the grass and you throw the grass away, you are defeating the point of natural soil. You can think of soil a little bit like your own skin. And if you look at your forearm and your nice unbroken skin, and then take a fork and just scratch it, just deep scratch it, you know, quarter of an inch in, that's what you're doing to the structure of soil if you till it. And then after you till it, if you put in a monoculture, like a lawn, you're taking the soil that you've damaged and you're keeping it from restructuring itself back into healthy soil by limiting the diversity of the plants in your property. Many of the articles that we talk about in Collectively Rewilding, which is hosted over in Mighty Networks, it's a social media platform and alternative to Facebook, very excellent place to uh, discuss things without having Facebook come in and put you into Facebook's gel. So we are over in Collectively Rewilding on Mighty Networks talking about things like no-till gardening and biodiversity, planting instead of these rolling acreage of lawns, planting native gardens. All of these are key points in bringing back life to soil within our reach. The whole planet has been degraded and damaged, 
and of each of us in our own little plots, in our own little spheres of influence, work towards bringing health back to our soil, that is how we can be a part of saving the future for our planet, for the food, for our children, for the animals, and all of the plants and biodiversity that we would want to see. Here on this plot that I'm currently renting, the soil was pretty badly damaged. They had done a construction period for this house, and they dug out a whole lot of the natural soil and put back in what they call filler dirt. And filler dirt is just that. Soil has life. Dirt does not. We use the terms interchangeably, but soil is a living substance, and dirt is a dead substance. And when they do construction sites, they bring in a lot of this filler dirt. That's what you're going to see at the end of most construction periods. If you don't have a landscaping team that comes in and follows behind, you're going to be left with dead dirt surrounding your property. And that was a lot of what we were dealing with here. At the same time that they started doing that construction, they began neglecting the backyard. So the backyard had become compacted and hard. Weeds could barely find purchase in there. It was a sloppy, messy mud hole anytime any kind of water, snow, or rain was put onto the soil. So we did some very mild tilling. It isn't even so deep as to be called tilling because we just took a hand scythe and scraped the top level of the soil because it had been so compacted Seeds couldn't find traction. Putting seeds down on soil like that is going to be ineffectual. You need to provide some sort of purchase for those seeds. So if your soil that you're dealing with has become compacted, compacted and hardened, where there's no give, if you run your finger along the top of it with your fingernail, you're just making a line. You're not getting into the soil. That is compacted soil. In order to begin the process of healing, there are two very um, common methods. You can utilize them in tandem or you can utilize them separately. If you have more time to wait for your soil to heal itself and you also don't have the time to put into hand breaking that top layer of soil, what you can do is put mulch down. And after a period of months, somewhere during that first season, you'll start seeing some give to the soil. There will be some traction where some weeds can get in. If you put down wildflowers, hardy wildflowers like cosmas, sunflowers, things like that, they'll begin to be able to work into that soil simply with the application of a good couple of inches of mulch. If you choose to speed the process up a little bit and you do a little bit of soil restructuring manually, meaning to actually break up the top layer of soil with some sort of tool or machinery. I recommend lighter weight whenever possible. You're trying to combat this compacting of the soil. You don't want to put more weight on it. You want to go with a lighter weight. We were only dealing with a backyard, not two or three acres. So we could put in the time and the manual effort to use a hand scythe to scrape those top layers of soil so that the clover seed that we put down had the ability to gain traction. 
we allowed the weeds to come in with it. There was no way we were going to get rid of them without digging out a couple feet of the soil and putting in new soil. And the point here is not to take healthy soil from somewhere else to replace the damaged soil that's been created. The point is to heal the soil that has been damaged. So we allowed the common mallow, and it's called knotweed, K-N-O-T, like to tie a knot, knotweed. They're soft. You can walk on them with bare feet. The common mallow is especially good for pollinators. It's actually an herb even can be utilized. And we let that mix with the clover. We now have a yard filled with clover, knotweed, and common mallow, as well as some borage and four o'clocks. They were supposed to be a type of geranium. I don't recommend ordering specialty seeds off of Amazon. Neither of the specialty seeds that I ordered were what they were supposed to be. Instead of getting borage and four o'clocks, I was supposed to be getting a Utah native red trumpet vine and geraniums that were also native here to Utah. And instead, I got borage, which is non-invasive and a very pleasant plant that is entirely edible, I believe. I know you can eat the leaves and the flowers. I'm not certain about the stems and the roots. And it's really pretty, very um, soft to the touch, very pleasant plant. Four o'clock, while they have some visual appeal, they are invasive. I would never have deliberately planted four o'clock in this yard. Luckily, my landlady wanted some four o'clock on her own property. So she wasn't upset because we talked about doing non-invasive plants when I took over the caring for her property. They're all out there though. They've reseeded along with some geraniums and some pot marigolds, some bachelor's buttons. That soil is now beginning to get life back into it. And it is so beautiful. It is so fulfilling to know that this soil is going to get better year after year from the work that we've put into it. We're going to continue that next year. I'm going to add in an even larger variety of clover, again, working away from that biodiversity, right? Allowing that common mallow and those knotweeds to slowly get transitioned out, adding in some native grasses around the edges and perhaps some native rose bushes, some different things like that. You wanna have height to the structure of the plants that you're putting in when you're bringing soil health back to life as well. True biodiverse soil does not stay at a certain height. It's everything from a quarter of an inch high all the way up to your trees. Even in the desert, you have your tall cacti, such as the saguaro or the um, pinyon and juniper trees that are in the southwest deserts. I'm from the West, so you'll hear me talk the most about plants from primarily the Southwest, from California all the way over through into Texas a little bit. And when you're looking at any sort of biome, you will see various heights within that structure. When you have a denser forest, that's where you start to see your canopy and things. But not all soil is intended to host such an intense forested structure. For instance, one of the content creators that we feature in Collectively Rewilding, Gerard Kenyate Hay, he's down in southwest Texas regreening the Texas desert. But that's not going to look like some lush tropical oasis or some very filled deciduous forest. 
it's going to have some desert trees in it and cacti and bushes and smaller cacti all the way down to the two and three inch type of cacti with perhaps um, some grasses, native grasses, a lot of wonderful things that he's doing over there. Another thing that's come up quite a bit lately is the variety that we have to choose from. Do you go with native? Do you go with ornamental that may or may not be native? These are all choices that we have to make. I have several people that are working towards these kinds of goals that I talk with on a, on a decent basis. One of them, Danielle St. John, we talked today, and she chose to put a non-native blackberry bush on her um, hill for soil retention. And some of her neighbors are giving her a pretty hard time. When we talk about these invasive species, I don't think that it's just great to try to change everything. I'm going to try to go towards much within the world of native plants, but I'm still going to have my tomatoes and my squashes, my cucumbers that may or may not be indigenous to this area. One of the things that we need to accept in all that we have done as a modern mechanized society has been to introduce a plethora of non-native species literally around the globe. They're even seeing it in Antarctica. This is something that has happened. I don't believe it can be stopped completely. Certainly we should try to work with the native plants, the native flora and fauna overall. But we do need to recognize that our world is changing it was already changing. We're probably speeding up that change. Whether you believe in that or don't believe in that, it really doesn't matter. We can see the changes around us on a day-to-day -day basis, the record-breaking heat waves that go through every summer now since about 2002, the slow increases from the ocean on all of our coastal cities and coastal lands. More water is there, the ice caps are melting. It doesn't matter what you think the cause is, we have to deal with the reality of what we are working in today. So while working with native and indigenous species is definitely a very positive goal and one I encourage us all to take a step towards, we also need to recognize that with these changes, with these climactic overhauls and Again, another sort of restructuring. Our entire globe is restructuring its biome. And some species are going to fade and some are going to take precedence. So perhaps some of this invasive species transfer that we've done will in the end save certain species from this sixth or seventh mass extinction that we are most likely going through right now. It's just a, a thought to add into our overall perspective. And we all have to think about it and decide where we stand on this important issue. But in reality, there is almost no way to stop the Varroa mite, for instance, that's now invading all of these beehives on every single continent that hosts beehives. Of course, Antarctica does not host bees yet. They may uh, be able to have bees slowly as all of this ice continues to melt. We'll have to see what happens. Every single other continent, even Australia, they have now accepted they are not going to be able to stop the invasion of the Varroa mite. 
we now have to work with saving our bees with the understanding that this mite is now across the globe. So these are all adaptations that we're all going to need to make, perspectives that we're going to have to consider for ourselves. And in the end, if we're healing the soil, we should feel good when we go to bed at night. The soil is the base of life, just as water is. Without water, air, and soil, there is no life. So if you're healing your soil, if you're working towards positive soil structure, that works towards healing the water and healing the air all at the same time. There's some debate right now in the agricultural world about whether or not planting trees is a good carbon capture method. There's a lot of debate about it, actually. And I have to agree with those who are saying, when you focus on one gas, one sort of excess in our biome, as they are with carbon, you're missing the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that there's always a balance of these different gases in our atmosphere. And if we focus exclusively on carbon, if we ex focus exclusively on the monarch, exclusively on the heart, it's the same throughout all of these types of systems. If you look only at a person's heart when they're suffering some sort of illness, you may miss the, the uh, respiratory illness that's actually weakening the heart. If you look only at the carbon gases that are building, you may miss what's happening to the nitrous oxide or the oxygen, all of these gases. And my husband could talk to you about that so much better. I don't even know if nitrous oxide is a common element in our atmospheric gases. I believe that it is. But all of these things expand until they fill the container that they're in, the container being our atmosphere. And if we focus exclusively on carbon, we're going to miss other key elements. Also, when they're talking about replanting these trees, many times they're planting one to maybe three or four kinds of tree. But when you really look at the natural biome of any area, there is going to be a lot more variety than that. And so we're damaging the overall structure of these biomes many times when we do these mass plantings, especially if it's not a native plant or tree. And there are some really excellent studies out there right now about this. India has done a study over a very lengthy period of time over these exact types of questions. When we go to try to heal something that we broke, we're probably going to make some mistakes because we're trying to introduce back what we took away. For instance, Lake Powell. Here in the Southwest, Lake Powell is a big contention point for a lot of environmentalists. And they are not wrong. They completely changed what that land was. However, Draining Lake Powell is not going to bring back what was. So we really need to look at it when we think that we are so powerful as to be able to fix what we've broken in natural systems. We really need to pay attention to what we're doing and notice changes and notice if what we're doing fits the overall natural pattern because we're doing more damage many times. And that's what they found in this study in India. 
they tried to reintroduce trees to save a grassland, but that grassland had very few trees. It did have, I'm sure, some scattered trees that belonged to that region, but it was predominantly a, a grassland. And so when they tried to introduce trees to save a grassland, it ended up further damaging the natural biome. In hindsight, I don't see how we could expect anything else. But the fact is that we're all experimenting when we're trying to correct something that we broke. We don't have a manual on how to fix that broken element of nature. Really interesting things, though. Definitely, it's better to pursue a solution than simply wait and see what happens. All right. Um, we can have call, uh, callers. Please feel free to call in. If you'd like to call in, you'll want to use 319-527-6208. Talk about soil. Talk about your yard. Talk about what you feel with all of these changes that we're trying to implement around the world. Let's look at one of the articles that we have up in Collectively Rewilding currently to go over this important topic of soil. Um, we have intercropping. Intercropping is another way basically of saying biodiversity. Instead of having a monocrop or monoculture, they mixed various agricultural uh, plants, different grasses and grains, some things like that. And it was a really interesting article. For me, what stood out was that they didn't add in any kind of height to their plant structure. And in the very end of the article, it does talk about that a little bit. But they really didn't go over the, oh, no, this was the one about root mass. Um, and so they really didn't cover that. A true root mass in a biodiverse climate will have large structured plants, whether it's the saguaro cactus or an oak tree. There will be something that goes beyond a two and three foot plant level height. So with this article, they talk about some of the successes and some of the failures and that they actually had a lower crop mass, root mass, at points than they expected. And I believe it is tied directly to the fact that they kept all of their plant structures very low, not even the two to three feet level. It doesn't go into it in huge depth, but with the picture that they show, you're talking very low growing crops. And that is not a natural system. So if we try to fix a problem that we've created, but we don't really look at what it is that we've broken, we're not going to see the kinds of results that we'd like to see. Oh, goodness. I hope I didn't do anything. I clicked this. I'm still learning all of this program. I better not do that any longer. We'll leave that alone. Um, and so when you're planning your garden, if you'd like to add a biodiverse climate culture, you want to keep in mind not just a variety of plants, 
but you want to keep a variety of height structures and root structures. So for instance, the dandelion, it can grow a taproot up to 50 feet in depth, but it doesn't send out a tremendous amount of root structure to the sides. There's some, especially up towards the top, but it's not really competing with the other plants a tremendous amount because its taproot goes so, so deep. When you talk about a eucalyptus tree, on the other hand, they're having a lot of problems with those down in Southern California because it's not meant to grow in that climate. And with all of the wind and water that happens being so near the ocean, they have these huge eucalyptus trees that are falling over because their root structure stays predominantly at the top of the soil. It does not go very deep. It doesn't get very strong. Many times you'll see a tree and you'll see these huge roots coming out of the ground going 10 feet or more. And the eucalyptus doesn't get these strong sideways growing roots, nor does it get the roots that are stabilizing that go deeper. So when they have so much weather on the California coast, it's just toppling these huge eucalyptus trees, causing major issues. So when you're planting your garden, you don't want to just think about what flowers you want to see, what colors you want to see. Yes, not just about biodiversity as a topic. You want to really think about the biodiversity that you're providing. You want to have a ground cover. You want to have some smaller plants that don't even reach a foot. And then you want to have everything that goes all the way up to at least one or two trees. Plants, when they're working together, not only do they communicate through things like scent, they also communicate through their root structure. And we find that many times in a forest setting, if a tree falls over or if it's cut down, the forest itself will keep the roots of that tree alive so that they can continue to use it in their communication and their overall soil structure. It's really beautiful how all of the plants in a healthy biome work together to support and protect each other. Uh, I can never remember the proper term, but there is a specific kind of fungi that is now being used as a soil amendment. And it is mycorrhizal. Mycorrhizal fungi is one of the elements that we've discovered in the recent past of plant communication in the soil. And so one of the things that we did here on this particular plot when we were working to bring back the health and the life to this soil was to add some of that, and let me go and look at the word or I'll say it wrong, mycorrhizal fungi. And it probably helped quite a bit. It did get dried out. I'm worried that it didn't take quite as well as I would have liked, but the amount of health throughout the summer that you could see the plants really suffered in the heat wave here because the soil structure was poor. But as that faded and the plants were able to continue to work into that soil more and more, we got a second and even third round of alyssum and pot marigolds. I'm going to actually incorporate that because I've learned that that does so well to try to bring that root mass and that soil structure back in this particular plot that I'm going to introduce it into the backyard as well. 
So we are going to have pot marigolds and alyssum scattered throughout the yard because they're going to work with that root mass structure. I don't just want the clover and the mallow and the knotroot, which are all under a foot in height, to be my only root mass. I've got to find some other elements to add in there. And this soil works really well with the alyssum and the pot marigolds, both of which are excellent for the pollinators. We did see quite a bit of pollinator activity early on here on this property. As the heat wave came on, it killed off the majority of plants that they wanted to continue to use. Honeybees especially have crops that they go to throughout the year. They switch. It's really fascinating. I've been reading a book from a Swedish gentleman that has an apiary, and they go from one type of staple crop to another throughout the year. And when we incorporate those elements in, that's going to do things like help bring back the soil through the seeding that happens. If we didn't have good pollinator activity, that alyssum and those pot marigolds wouldn't have been able to reseed themselves. And some of us throughout the globe are seeing that now, where our pollinator activity is low enough that we have to worry about self-pollinating. One of the topics that we're covering in Collectively Rewilding is all of the automation and mechanical solutions that are being explored to try to fix some of the damage that we've created. There are drones, there are machines that use different sizes of essentially paintbrushes, and they go amongst these plants and pollinate through a mechanical process these plants that aren't being pollinated by our natural pollinators. And while it's good to see solutions coming through automation and through mechanization, if we start working together, that's the whole premise of collectively rewilding, right? Working together, we're all experimenting, we're all learning, we're all rewilding ourselves. We're about like that wheat that can no longer grow outside of uh, cultured surroundings. This wheat can't grow anymore that we utilize for our common bread if you put it into a natural environment, it wouldn't be able to survive. It's become so specialized and so specifically bred. Well, humanity is about coming to that point. If you threw us out into a natural environment that somebody wasn't going to provide our structure, our food, our electricity, we would be quite possibly in very dangerous circumstances. However, we can take that back. We can take back our own food and the propagation and the components that are the food, whether you're talking about eliminating pesticides and fungicides and herbicides, or you're talking about having healthy soil that will have healthier produce. Because when we compact our soil, when we fill it with all this chemical junk, when we till it and break the soil structure over and over and over again, not only is that soil in bad shape for itself, but it's not healthy soil to provide the right sets of nutrients for the plants that we grow in it. They can measure the nutritive level of our food 
and it has gone down decade after decade because of all of the degradation that we're doing to our arable lands. The compaction takes away the aeration of the soil where our plants get some of their literal, ox well, carbon monoxide so that they're being able to sustain their own lives. The water and the nutrient level is all lessened when the soil is compacted. Then start adding in the chemicals, the pesticides, and the fake fertilizers, and our soil is hurting. If our soil is hurting, the foods that we're eating out of that soil are less than they should be. We can take all of that back. Think of the victory gardens in, I believe it was World War I. All of that is something that we can do today. If you have your own property, whether it's a small lot, even a condo with a porch, you can start growing food. Um, another one of our hosts here on Freedomizer Radio, Danielle St. John, who hosts, uh, hosts Seeds of Change, she's been talking about this for years, taking back our food, our health, and our news, I believe, are her three main components. And we absolutely can do that. When we take back our food, to a large degree, we're going to take back our health. And if we start changing the conversation about soil health and gardening and sustenance and foods and nutrition, we start taking back our news as well. That's what this is all about. Let's take it back. None of us really appreciate these bad corporate citizens. They put so much packaging on our products. They don't listen to the fact that we don't want the chemicals in our foods. They make it difficult for some people to even access fresh foods. We have the food deserts throughout this country where people can't even go and buy some fresh strawberries and fresh tomatoes. They're only able to get packaged, frozen, canned fruits and vegetables. But we can take that back. The um, community gardens, in Compton, California, and Detroit, uh, Michigan, right? I think. Anyway, it's definitely Detroit. <clears throat> they are in the middle of some of these food deserts, and they've taken abandoned lots and turned them into community gardens that are feeding hundreds, sometimes even up to thousands of people. I shouldn't say thousand, up to about a thousand, I think, for some of the Detroit gardens. It's amazing. And the communities did that. Nobody did that for them. The communities went out. They got permission from these abandoned plots, the landowners. They worked with their municipalities to get the water and things that they needed to these plots of land. They worked with their communities to educate and protect their gardens and show people what they were gaining from having this beautiful community endeavor. And in Compton, they started doing, I, I'm not as familiar with the Compton Gardens, but they started doing things where they would just almost um, gorilla garden, right? That's a term for today. And start just planting things in the yard. There was a gentleman that did that for his yard and they came in and they were trying to force him to tear his yard up. And he fought 
He said, you have all of this nasty problem areas around me, trash overflowing, unsanitary, pest-filled, rat-filled areas, and you're going to come after me for my garden in my own front yard? And he fought against it, and he succeeded. And he brought in the media. He brought in the L.A. Times. We can all do this. We can all take back what's been taken from us, whether it's your health, the food that you eat, or the things that you talk about. That's collectively rewilding. We're all out there with our own ideas about how to do this. It's all a, a, a hypothesis. We're all just testing what we think might help to correct some of the damage that we're doing, and we're all trying to do it together. All right, everybody. Let's listen to Gerard Kenyatte Hay, somebody that we were talking about a little bit today. He's out there in the southwest Texas desert, and this is why he left what he calls un-society. Good morning. My name is Gerard. Um, I've never done an intro video. I don't think I have. So, you know, I do have social media um, content on different platforms, but I've never really just stopped and talked about why I moved off grid and what I'm doing. So it's just a quick statement, intro, welcome. Appreciate you joining me on my journey. I won't convince you that I'm the best video maker, content person, funny, knows what he's doing. I'm an automation engineer. Well, I was. Uh, climbed into management, realized that this is not the place for me. This is not what I want to do. I don't think I'm working for the right people. I realized that we have the automation and the ability to feed and house everybody on this planet. So uh, I escaped that system. I believe in seeing problems and fixing them. And I do believe moving off grid and exodus from the system is a good idea. I absolutely will not be getting into politics in any way, shape, or form on this channel. Um, I have other social media where I get into politics, if that's what you like. Um, I'm more anti-political than anything. I don't think centralized power is a great idea, and that's the most I'll ever say here. This channel is for living off grid, me learning. I moved out here by myself, out here in the wilds of West Texas, is pretty much as far from people as I could get, um, within a comfort zone of about an hour of a Home Depot. And that's really what you want to do. And not really a Home Depot, hardware store better if you can find one. I'm not anti-Home Depot, but we need to get away from centralized everything. We need to diversify a little bit more. The only way we'll exist on this planet is if we are spread out, not consolidated into cities. Uh, living in sync with the land, restoring the, the ecosystems we've destroyed through desertification and all the other things that we've done, which is part of why I'm out here. I've got three projects that I'm working on. One was living off grid. Could I move out to a piece of raw land, build a place to live, a homestead, and become sustainable? And I'm about 90-some percent done with that project. Um, I am sustainable. I could say 100%, but I, I won't. I, I, I don't... Um, I want, I want to make sure I've got some checks and balances for the water system, but in terms of food, housing, safety, security, all of that, I've already done that. Um, I, uh, the next part of this process, though, is greening the desert. 
you know, taking a, a piece of des- desertified land that we've destroyed through various means. I, you know, like I said, I, I, everyone has a different idea of how we took uh, dry lands and turned them into deserts. But uh, I, I, I don't like to point fingers, you know, in anything. I, I simply like to solve problems. So turning this dry piece of land back into a, a, a dry land forest, if you will, you know, something that uh, I think the Native Americans in this area said, uh, this place used to be full of grasslands, and now it's full of rock and caliche and dust. So um, green in the desert is, is, is a big portion of it, you know, putting in my fruit orchards, putting in trees, doing earthworks and swales to make sure that they are automatically watered when it rains that their roots go deep enough that they can be sustained without me or anybody else watering them and the last portion is automation you know and this gets back to me being an automation engineer i believe you know the only way we're really going to help restore this planet back to the way it used to be before we became so foolish is automation we're going to need green drones we don't need drones dropping bombs anymore just just my opinion uh that's again that's as most political as as i'm gonna be here you're just gonna hear just general statements nothing specific um but we need green drones we need drones that help the human race we need to start using technology to help people live better lives instead of fighting each other over economic systems that have been deployed all over this planet that don't work with this planet nor work with us that are designed to keep a lot of us on the bottom and very few on the top it's not a good idea so restoring Eden, uh, but we're going to need drink. We're going to need automation. We're going to need drones. We're going to need drones that plant seeds, water trees, keep things going. Green the desert was tried in various countries, China, uh, continents, Africa, um, and they failed because a lot. Well, a lot of them failed. Some of them worked, but a lot of them failed because they had no one watering the trees. Drones can do that, and doing things in a food forest manner, which only software is going to take care of on a large scale. So anyway, I appreciate you joining me on my voyage. Um, I shall be producing more and more videos. Have a great day. All right. So that's Gerard Kenyatte's reasoning for why he left Pennsylvania and his career to start regreening the Texas desert. Really interesting path that he's on over there. All right. Let's go ahead and read an article about no-till gardening. No-till gardening keeps soil and plants healthy. While the practice of no-till gardening is not new, information has traditionally centered on agricultural field crops. Now, home uh, home gardeners are catching on. The concept of no-till has been around for a couple of decades, but research has been very focused on field crops, like wheat and corn, things largely grown in the Midwest said Erica Trineau, Oregon State University Extension Service horticulturist. There's not much on vegetable production or fruit. There's a lot to learn and research is ongoing. No-till gardening minimizes soil disruption, which compacts the soil and destroys the pathways that channel air and water through the soil, Trineau said. Every time a tiller cuts through soil, the structure is weakened, which can cause compaction and increase runoff. There's also erosion and surface crusting that results from overtilling, Chernow said. In addition to disturbing soil structure, tilling disrupts the microorganisms and other soil dwellers that live in the top couple of inches and are essential for soil plant and health, she said. Soil microbes, some of which have a symbiotic relationship with plants, cluster around roots, and as they feed on organic matter and each other, 
secrete nutrients that feed plants and substances that act as glue to bind soil particles into larger aggregates that keep soil pores open. Long strands of fungal hyphae can hold the aggregates together, and earthworms and other large organisms also work to create pore space. Weed seeds, some of which can remain dormant in the soil for several years, come to the surface under the blades of a tiller, then germinate and become a problem. A big part of no-till gardening is keeping the soil protected with a mulch layer, leaving the seeds in place and suppressing any weeds that pop up. No-till has its disadvantages too, Cherno said. Covering the soil makes it more difficult to direct seeds into the bed, especially for home gardeners who don't have large seed drills. Just as a side note, I didn't have any difficulty with that at all. Covering up the soil with some mulch, the seeds just trickle down into it. I don't understand why they think that you have to have seed drills. If a plant seeds itself in the wild, it doesn't drill into the soil in order to propagate itself. It's a little bit silly. Continuing on, mulch also keeps the soil from warming up as quickly in spring as unmulched beds. However, the benefits far outweigh those drawbacks, she said. Mechanical tillage does have its place, especially in the formation of new garden beds with high compaction and low organic matter, she said, which is exactly what we were dealing with on this property. That's why we did introduce slight amount of hand tilling. In most cases, however, non-mechanical approaches to working with soil can help you accomplish your goals without the negative effects of tilling on your soil. Soil coverage is also an important concept in a no-till system. For home gardeners, this can be achieved by using cover crops or mulch. Mulching materials may include straw, compost, aged livestock manure, dried leaves, or grass clippings. Mulch will protect the soil from rain and wind, which can cause erosion. In early spring, the mulch layer can be pulled back from the bed to allow sunlight to warm the soil. In nature, again, Nothing pulls back that top layer to expose the soil to the sun. The earth itself works with the natural elements and warms as it should. I don't recommend what they're talking about there at all. Also, when they talk about um, the mulch protecting the soil from rain and wind, it does. But that's just, again, one component. We mulched this entire property for where there was bare soil. And we did our best to start getting plants to root into that soil. However, there's a very shady patch, just a small stretch. It's only about maybe eight or nine inches long by about a foot wide. And it gets almost no sunlight at all. And this was our first year on the property, so we didn't realize that. I tried to put snapdragons, foxglove, hollyhock, and something else, another tall plant kind of along those lines. And only a few of the snapdragons really took. A couple of the foxgloves produced seeds, but they could never get more than about two inches high. And for those of you who know, a foxglove should be around probably three feet, two and a half feet, a decent sized plant. When we had our flooding here, all of that mulch washed off of the soil because there were no roots helping to anchor it in place. As this mentioned, the glue, all of that works together. The roots and the secretion of those nutrients from the soil microbes 
around those roots. That all helps to hold the soil together. So we were working with it and we were endeavoring to create that structure to the soil, but we didn't know it well enough and we didn't put the right types of plants in it. And all of the mulch that we had put there off of it. It was awful. It made a huge mess. And the soil is starting over again this coming season because nothing remains from what we tried to do to help it heal itself. We have to look at the whole picture. Every time an article or a paper or a documentary focuses on just one element, remember, they're missing the big picture. And you need to think about all of the pieces to the best of our ability. We only learn these pieces as time goes on. We didn't know about the mycorrhizal fungi until, I don't know, maybe in the last 20 years that became a thing that was pretty well known. All of these pieces will come into play. We can't expect perfection out of ourselves, but try to focus outside of a single element. Don't just think about the mulch. Think about the cover crop as well, because if you don't apply enough soil structure with your plants, if there's a lot of wind or rain, that mulch alone cannot protect your soil. One method of no-till gardening is often referred to as sheet mulching or lasagna gardening and features layers of organic material to create a healthy growing medium. It's a system in which organic materials, many of which would normally be sent to a landfill, are used to create a garden bed. I've heard positive and negative about lasagna gardening. It's a little bit trendy. Anything that's very trendy, I'm always very hesitant with. We want a simple solution. We want to pop a pill and have our health back. We want to go to McDonald's and get our food in three minutes. Simple is a lot of times your best answer. However, trendy, whether it's simple or not, tends to have a lot of complications as you go on. With the lasagna gardening, a big component that's generally introduced are sheets of, yes, compostable, excuse me, compostable cardboard. However, that is a flat, impenetrable surface for a period of time to the root structure. It will eventually work its way through that. But if you just put out sheets of cardboard over all of your area that you're mulching, when the roots hit that cardboard in the first year or two, they're going to be blocked. It's going to be very difficult for them to get through that cardboard. I believe if you wanted to make lasagna gardening a little bit more realistic, you could break up that cardboard, take something and just slice it so that it's perforated, throughout regular portions of that cardboard, those roots will find those perforations and they will make it through. And I think that that will help make lasagna gardening or sheet mulching a little bit more realistic. Continuing on, cover crops are a big part of no-till farming, but can be a challenge for home gardeners because many need to be tilled in or sprayed with an herbicide to terminate the crop. Again, that's not the kind of thought process that I'm going to be applying. I don't want to eradicate them through chemical means. If, for instance, my landlady decides that she does want a lawn in her backyard, what I'm going to recommend to her is to allow the clover to continue to be there and simply seed the yard every year 
with hopefully at least a mixture of grass seed and it will slowly dominate over the clover. You don't have to kill the plants that are already there to create what you want in your area. Okay, so you don't have to spray it or till it to get rid of it. You can just slowly outseed it. If using a winter cover crop, gardeners should plant in early fall and mow in spring after flowering, but before the plants set seeds and become weeds. So if you want to use clover in that regard, that does work. You don't have to uh, spray it or any of that. You can simply mow it and it'll stop the continued proliferation of that clover. Um, you can transplant or direct seed into the fine co uh, cover crop mulch layer. Again, they're talking about how to just eliminate those cover crops. If using cover crops, be sure to select one that can be killed by cold temperatures or mowing rather than tilling or herbicide. Cover crops like Austrian winter peas, crimson clover, or fava beans are good options for home gardeners using no-till methods. When cleaning up the garden at the end of the summer, gardeners can cut off the tops of cover crop plants and leave the roots in the soil. Excuse me. <clears throat> There's less disruption and the roots will decompose and provide food for the microorganisms. The clippings can be used as mulch. Please don't throw away your clippings. When plants are in nature, they let down their leaves, they drop their stems, they die out in the winter and simply stand there until the snow and the animals and all of the weather push them down and they become the cover of the soil for the next season. That's the same for your garden, even for your lawn. If you throw away all of the clippings from your lawn, instead of having a fine layer that you let just kind of disappear into the grass itself, you're taking the nutrients that that grass pulled from the soil and removing it from the system. All of that grass, is literally the nutrients that were pulled from your soil. So you want to leave your clippings in place. They need to be small enough that they're not gonna lay on top of the soil and cause uh, death to the soil it's covered, to the grass it's covering. They need to be fine clippings. There are lawn mowing machines out there that will do that for you. You can mow your lawn more often so that they stay smaller. There's a variety of ways that you can do that. You don't want to remove those clippings. A lot of people create beds with the lasagna style, Truno said. You can even build one on top of the lawn. So in that case, they are putting down the cardboard to stop the grass from coming up. And I understand that that's the principle, but you have to think about that on the reverse side of it. Just as the roots or just as the grass isn't able to push easily through that cardboard, eventually it would, after a few years and breaking down of the cardboard, but it's not able to that first year or two. Also though, the roots from the upper plants can't get through that cardboard. So you have to pick and choose what's more important to you. All right. It's a no-till way of making a nice garden bed rather than turning the soil to make a new seed bed every year. Here's how to create a lasagna bed, also called sheet mulching. One, 
start in fall so the bed has all winter to start decomposing. That's absolutely an excellent recommendation. Again, perhaps perforating that cardboard as well. Cut grass as low as possible or start a lasagna garden on top of an old planting bed. Loosen soil with a digging fork to increase aeration. Even punching holes in the ground will work. Remove weeds, build a raised bed or frame, just mound up the organic layers of material into an unframed bed. Let me read that again. Build a raised bed frame or just mound up the layers of organic material into an unframed bed. Put a layer of cardboard overlapped an inch or two and water, uh, water it. Cover with two inches of green organic material like grass clippings, fresh plant debris, fresh animal manure, and food scraps that provide nitrogen and brown materials like dry leaves, wood chips, straw, and shredded newspaper that are carbon sources. Repeat layers until the bed is about 18 inches. Top off with a two to six inch brown layer, thicker if you want to plant right away. Create beds only wide enough to reach into the middle and create paths lined with straw to walk on so soil doesn't get compacted. Lasagna beds will shrink as materials decompose and may need refreshed layers each year. Using transplants is easier in no-till gardening system, systems. The mulch layer is easier to transplant directly into rather than direct seeding, especially for small seeded crops like lettuce and broccoli. To transplant, use a trowel or other tool to make holes large enough to plant into. If directly seeding into the bed, pull back the mulch layer and smooth over the surface with a rake before seeding. All right, so I have some disagreements with some of the overall thoughts in that article, but it's still a great place to begin. And when we're going through these processes with these not very well tested theories, you do want to go with what you think. When you have these people out there, like my cousin Lisa was, and they just have a green thumb, they probably didn't spend a lot of time listening to articles and following just everything they were told. They have an innate sense of what they will work well with. Every person learns, acts, thinks, and retains information differently. It's going to be the same way with our gardening. What works well for someone might not work well for everyone. So when you're feeling out how you want to set about healing your land, you really want to look at what will work for you. And then you have to test it. See if that lasagna style does work for you or doesn't, if that's something that you're interested in trying. It may work well in some parts of the country and not work as well in other parts of the country. We also have to be patient with, each, uh, with ourselves and each other. A hundred years ago, most people had some idea of what it meant to grow and raise their own food. Today, if you go and talk to the average public on the street, we've all seen it, the little quick reels that they'll do and they stand and just ask questions of the general populace and people think their hamburger comes from the grocery store. They really don't understand. And in fact, there have been those who will say, well, I don't know why you're going to go hunting. I don't know why you don't just go to the grocery store instead of killing animals. Well, if you're eating meat, there is an animal component there. If you don't want to eat meat, understanding how to have 
the most nutritive fruits and vegetables is still not something that most of us grew up experiencing in a very in-depth manner. So we're all learning. We all have to be patient with ourselves, and we should all be patient with everyone else as well. In the end, if we're out there trying to bring back nature into our lives and into the areas of the world that we physically can interact with, you're doing the right thing. We're all going to make mistakes, whether it's on a broad scale, such as that study with India, or on an individual scale in our own yards and porch gardens. As long as we're putting our hands in the soil and doing our best to interact with that soil and learn how that soil behaves, what helps it, what hurts it, you're on the right path. All right. So, again, for guest call-in, we have 319-527-6208. Another part of just getting your hands in the soil, it is actually a healing process. There are microbes in the soil, when the soil is healthy, that interact with our own body chemistry. When we constantly walk with shoes and socks on and we're never reaching down into that soil with our hands, we're not getting that natural interaction that used to just be a part of being alive. Those microbes are a part of regaining our health. They're a part of taking back the understanding of our soil, of our natural world. We have another article here from the Epic Times, kind of appropriate on Freedomizer Radio. How gardening is good for your microbes, muscles, and mood. Research keeps affirming all the diverse ways digging in the dirt and nurturing growth can support our well-being. I think a lot of the time today, when we get depressed, when we can't sleep, when we have health issues, we're missing nature. We're also missing community. We are not solitary creatures. We do have a natural behavioral pattern, and that natural behavioral pattern, a community whether you consider us more towards like herding animals, horses and things, or you consider us more like prides, like lions, it really doesn't matter. As a natural creature, human beings are meant to socialize and we are natural beings, no matter how much we try to remove ourselves from that natural system to our own detriment. And when we don't interact with the natural world, there's a hole inside of us even if we don't recognize it. And so I think a lot of us, when we get depressed, when we have trouble sleeping, we're actually missing interaction with our natural world and a natural community to go along with that. So with this article, it says, there are few activities more nourishing for both body and soul than planting and tending a garden. Gardeners have long known that the physical process of working with soil, water, and sunlight to coax a tiny seed through the miracle of growth and maturity have effects that go well beyond the pleasure of eating a strawberry or smelling a rose. A growing body of research shows that gardening is good for our physical and mental health. First of all, as anyone who has hauled bags of mulch or dug up tough perennials knows, gardening can be strenuous exercise. Even light gardening, which can include activities such as weeding and watering, 
burns approximately 330 calories per hour for a 154-pound person, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If done regularly, gardening can definitely contribute toward physical fitness goals. Interestingly, a study done by researchers from the University of Arkansas and published in the Journal of Women and Aging found that yard work can increase bone density and significantly decrease the risk of osteoporosis in women older than 50. That's amazing. There, again, we think that we can ingest calcium in some unnatural form. Certainly, we don't drink milk in nature past about the three-year age. So when we're drinking another animal's milk, that is not a natural form of calcium intake. And there are other ways to gain those same benefits that if we were a more natural creature would already be a part of our life. Yard work was even more effective in strengthening bone density than other forms of exercise such as swimming and jogging. And it appears that the weight-bearing activities normally done during yard work, such as shoveling dirt and carrying water cans, made all the difference. Lori Turner, Assistant Professor of Health Sciences and lead researcher for the study, told the University of Arkansas News, we hadn't expected yard work to be significant. It's taken for such a dainty activity, but there's a lot of weight-bearing motion going on in the garden, digging holes, pulling weeds, pushing a mower. The health benefits of gardening go well beyond physical thickness. Exposure to diverse soil microbes, the microscopic bacteria, fungi, and viruses that live underground is beneficial to our own body's microbes, microbiomes. <laughs> COVID-19 notwithstanding, we won't get into whether that's a thing to base anything on or not. We'll just kind of push that to the side. We've come a long way from the notion that all germs are generally bad and need to be attacked with disinfecting cleaners. The vast majority of the trillions of bacteria that are on, in, and around us at all times are either benign or beneficial. The hygiene hypothesis would suggest that exposure to germs in early life is helpful for strengthening a child's developing immune system continues to be supported with ongoing research. This hypothesis also posits that a lack of microbial exposure is a contributing factor to allergies. The boy in the bubble, right? The girl in the bubble. We have come to this thought process that natural is dirty to the point that we clean things with these chemicals where we're killing every living organism on a surface to the point that we eradicate the microbiome necessary in human beings for a healthy life. That is the boy in the bubble. There are other causes, certainly, but that is one of the things that can contribute to such a severe level of allergic reaction to the natural environment. We remove ourselves so completely from it sometimes that we cause ourselves major medical issues. When epidemiologists from the University of Melbourne discovered that farm kids are far less likely to develop allergies and asthmas than city kids, they theorized that it was because of the greater microbial diversity found on farms, where kids not only have more contact with dirt, but also farm animals, pets, and siblings, according to results, uh, results published in the journal Thorax. 
Could it be that the dramatic rise in childhood asthma and allergies in the past few decades could have been exacerbated by living lifestyles that are too clean? Jack Gilbert and Rob Knight in their book, Dirt is Good, wrote, let your kids play in and even eat dirt. Soil is a microbial heaven with more than a billion bacterial cells per gram and many fungi and viruses as well. Unless there's a lot of animal poop, that's, that's a big caveat, folks. Unless there's a lot of animal poop around the soil, which would not only be a bit gross, as this article says, it's called night soil when um, omnivore and predatory animals leave their excrement behind, it creates a soil condition that is unhealthy for us to ingest the produce grown in that soil. One of the other content creators in Collectively Rewilding, Misty Folds, just got a new property, and they have a yard that they'd like to eventually garden with. It was a dog's yard for years, so there has been years and years worth of dog excrement adding to that soil content. They have to amend that soil before it's healthy for them to ingest the foods grown in that land. Okay, so unless there's a lot of animal poop around the soil, you can relax in knowing the soil contains very few organisms that can make your child sick. It is a, I think I'm missing a page here. Nope. It is a great source and a great opportunity to expose children to a complex microbial community that will help train their immune system. All right. So when we're talking about kids and eating soil, we definitely want to put a few additional thoughts out there. If it's in your backyard and you know the components of your soil and you're not next to the roadway where maybe oil is spilling into it and who knows what all goes on with it healthier soil, if you're in a forest, if you're in a backyard that you know is not, as it says, contaminated by a lot of animal waste, those are great conditions for your child to explore the dirt. Yes, even a little bit with their mouth, but do be very sure you know where that dirt is coming from and probably still not something I would actively encourage my child to do because we're all going to go to places where the soil probably shouldn't be in their mouths. So I'm a little leery of that discussion there. We definitely want to put some thought in it, right? Bodily benefits aside, gardening is also great for mental health. The psychological benefits of being outdoors and interacting with nature are so widely accepted that many doctors are prescribing nature therapy, a prescription that includes spending time outdoors in green spaces to help alleviate mental illnesses, especially anxiety and depression. A large, study, a large survey conducted in Wisconsin and published in 2014 in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health found that the availability of green spaces in neighborhoods had a significant effect on lowering levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. There's even a bacteria found in soil, Microbacterium vasae, that has been shown to have an effect on mental health similar to an antidepressant. It probably comes with little to no side effects as well. And that's what the article goes into. Without any negative side effects, according to a study published in Neuroscience on May 11, 2007, is it any wonder that gardening lifts our moods and leaves us feeling better? Planting and tending a garden can be an enjoyable, rewarding way to boost both our physical and mental health. 
not to mention a way to add delicious and low-cost produce to our tables. We just need to get out and dig in. Another thing I think is funny, so often in these articles you see low-cost, way to save money. In the end, gardening can save you money when done correctly. However, typically the initial investment in a garden is probably going to be costing you more than what it would be to just go to the grocery store and get the lowest cost produce that's available at any given time. However, if it's maintained properly, it will take less and less work over the years and will cost less and less to maintain. However, be prepared for that first year or so to be a little bit costly. A recent solution to that cost that I came across, I was reading a blog and this woman was utilizing a service called Get Chip Drop. Let me just make sure I have that absolutely right. GetChipDrop.com. Get.com is a service that takes local arborists, the people that go around and maintain, plant, and cut down trees, And they gather up all of their trees, and instead of putting them into a landfill or having to pay someone to deal with them, they bring them and dump an entire truckload of free chips on your property. There are some things you have to work with when you're using this service. They don't really give you any kind of a warning. They just tell you it could be any day, any hour, over the next so and so weeks. They come, and they drop it, and they go away. And there is a lot of wood chips. Think about what an entire truckload would look like. You're literally talking about a pile about as big as an average compact car. So make sure you've gotten yourselves prepared, maybe talk to a few neighbors and you're going to share it, but that is a way to seriously cut costs your first year and every year thereon where you need a serious amount of mulch. So that's getchipdrop.com. G-E-T, C is in Charles, H-I-P is in Paul, D is in David, R-O-P is in Paul. GetChipDrop.com to seriously take out some of the pocket pain in starting and maintaining a garden. All right. Let's see. Where are we at? We've talked about microbes and not tilling. Let's go over the ins and outs of fall cover crops for reinvigorating your garden soil for next spring. This is one that I don't have a lot of experience with and that I'm working with. I don't necessarily always agree with the thought process behind it, but you do have to understand what you are working with before you can decide if it's going to work with you or not. So let's go over the ins and outs of fall cover crops to reinvigorate your garden soil for next spring. One of the techniques many gardeners use to naturally reinvigorate their soil year after year is to plant fall cover crops when they've finished harvesting their summer vegetables. Most annual crop plants are heavy feeders, depleting the soil of its nutrients. And when we clean those fruits and vegetables away, many of those nutrients are taken out of the soil cycle. So that is a part of separating ourselves so much from nature. When we were more natural interactors with our environment, When we would eat the fruits and the vegetables and 
the grains, all of these things, that same material would get put back into the biome simply by us existing, eating, and eliminating. Now we remove that. We put our waste into our water system, which is really pretty gross when you think about it. There are a lot of ways that waste management could be handled that would be a lot more sustainable. That disgusting material should be stored properly for about seven years and rotated and turned just like you would any sort of um, decomposing material. You know, when you have your composter out there and you turn your tumbler or you have a compost pile and you use your uh, rake or your hoe to move it around and get it to further that decomposition process, the same thing should be done to our waste. They should be stored and manipulated for around seven to 10 years and then returned to our soils. Instead, we contaminate our water with our waste and then we take that water and we put it through a whole bunch of chemical processes. It's a really unsustainable system. Um, so when we take those nutrients out, we have to think about that. However, you can mitigate some of that by not removing the plants themselves. So yes, pick all your tomatoes, maybe leave a few for the animals for seed next year, that's wonderful. But leave the plant, the tomato plant itself there. And whether you cut it off towards the soil base and um, actually shred it up, anything like that, that's always a possibility. Or you leave it in place and just through walking on it and snow and rain, allow it to break down into the soil, much of that nutritive quality will actually return to your soil. It's when you remove those plants, just like if you remove your glass or your grass clippings, that you remove the nutrients from the soil. In natural systems, annual plants grow, die, and decompose in place, and perennial plants shed leaves each year to replenish the soil. However, most gardens don't operate this way but that's a choice we're making. We can return to a more normal functioning system in our own gardening plots. We harvest crops and plants so they never get a chance to decompose and feed the soil. To replicate the same natural effect, we can plant cover crops that are grown simply to keep the garden soil vibrant and full of life. These crops are cultivated simply to be cut in place and left to decompose in the garden. And again, I say to you, why do we go to all these extra steps when nature ends the growing season, it doesn't cut the plants down. The plants fall down through their normal processes. Now, when spring comes around and we want our garden to look a little bit nicer, if there's still some of those uh, perennials that need to be cut back, it can actually increase their growth and things. We are manipulating our systems. But where you can allow nature to be natural, that saves you money, time, and energy for a better result, why would we want to do anything else? All right. Only now, because we are choosing the plants we want to feed our soil, we can gear our cover crops to get as much as possible out of them. How cover crops work. Cover crops are planted near the end of the growing season after viable harvests have been gotten. The seeds are sown thickly so that they occupy the entire garden space, allowing no room for weeds. They grow as much as possible before the winter cold makes everything dormant or dead. Then, in late winter or early spring, the crops are cut so that the roots can decompose beneath the soil and the debris can act like rich organic natural mulch. 
As all of the organic matter breaks down, it feeds the organisms in the soil, and that creates fertility, replenishing macro and micronutrients. What makes a, cover, a good cover crop? Specific cover crops can be chosen for many reasons, but the general idea is that they have a valuable root structure, plenty of biomass, cold hardiness, and or fast growth tendencies. Nitrogen-fixing legumes are a common choice, with white clover, red clover, hairy vetch, and field peas being easy finds. Annual or win and winter rye are common grasses used for cover. They are hard, cold hardy, produce a lot of biomass, and have deep root systems. Grains like barley and oats, also grasses, are also possible choices because they have special abilities. Oats are very tolerant of wet conditions, and barley tolerates dry, salty soils. Many growers like to do a combination of these plants or similar ones. Daikon radishes are another common find in cover crop mixes because they are great for loosening compacted soil. I'm actually considering daikon radishes for this soil here. There's several areas of this backyard that even though we've gotten so many plants introduced into the root mass and we do have that mulch on it, they are so compacted that even with the breaking up that we did in the very beginning of the year, they've recompacted, they shed the mulch, they cannot retain the mulch, and nothing is growing there. So deliberately breaking that soil that's compacted and planting decon radishes may solve those few patches that just will not break up. Why cover crops are awesome. Cover crops earn their keep by adding fertility to the soil, but the benefits don't stop there. By keeping the soil planted and covered, they keep weeds at bay and they provide a safe habitat for the soil microbes when the weather gets cold and or snowy. When they say that it takes extra time to warm the soil back up when you have mulch, it also is more exposed to the cold. That's why I say imitate nature wherever possible and let the ground and the sun and all of that interact naturally to determine when your soil should be warmed. Cover crops also prevent soil from eroding via wind or rain, and they protect the soil tilth by preventing compaction, because those roots are in there working that soil, right? Finally, in the spring, the crop residue provides an awesome layer of mulch in no-till gardens. When and how to plant cover crops. Technically, cover crops can be planted anytime the garden bed doesn't have a food crop growing in it. Most of the time, when gardeners talk about cover crops, they are referring to winter cover crops. These are planted in late summer or early autumn when there is still time for them to grow before winter. Getting a little bit late, but you could definitely still try it, especially in the warmer parts of the country. Usually, they are sown after food crop plants have been removed, but they can be sown around those plants if harvests are still coming in. Cover crops are also chosen because they are easy plants to grow. They don't require any tilling or special care. Rather, the seed is spread thickly, two or three times the normal recommended amount, over the garden space, gently raked into the soil and left to do its thing. The general idea is that the cover crop doesn't mature because we don't want it to become woody or produce seeds. Cover that garden. Because our gardens give us so much food each year, we must return the favor. That's the give and take of sustainable farming. The whole thing is about keeping the soil fertile, and that boils down to keeping the soil life well-fed and happy. 
Cover crops are a tried and true method for doing just that. And so again, I still think that we're trying too hard to manipulate nature. I think that we can utilize some of these thought processes without completely following the mechanized thought process that I see threaded through so much of this. Even in this article itself, it's talking about the fact that these plants can be planted while you're still getting produce off of the other plants. That is biodiversity. In nature, different plants come to fruition throughout the growing season, including even into the coldest months of the year when you're looking at certain areas of the warmer parts and even some of the colder parts, but that aren't as deeply frozen. Right. So if you decide to try to work towards a more natural system, when you're reading these articles and they talk about things such as cutting down plants, think in nature. Is that how it would go? And then you can determine for yourself whether you want to have a more natural or a more mechanized type of garden. I'm a busy person. I love gardening. But I'm running two businesses. I have two children, one of whom is homeschooled. I have pets. I'm a wife. My husband has MS. And we both have other medical conditions that we're dealing with. We both have scoliosis and some some things. So we have a lot going on in our day-to-day lives. If I can have a healthier garden by following natural processes and not so much blood, sweat, and tears, I think that's a win-win all the way around. One of the common mistakes in our cultural colloquialism, I believe, is the idea of breaking our backs to produce our food. Um, In the Christian mantra, there's the talk of leaving the Garden of Eden to have to, with the toil and sweat of our bodies, produce what the Garden of Eden used to produce. Again, Daniel St. John reminded me of one of my earlier analogies. I believe that the true hidden story behind the Garden of Adam and Eve is that we left the natural world for the agrarian revolution. We decided we didn't want to just follow the seasons. We wanted to control our food processes. There's definitely some good in that. Having the ability to become stationary instead of constantly nomadic, following the plants and animals as they go through the seasons, has some very valuable uh, some very valuable parts to it. However, we went about it the wrong way, in my opinion. We can't control nature. They try more and more, and more and more nature fights back. They put out these bioengineered crops, and you get super weeds. They start putting antibiotics into every conceivable place they can think of, and you start seeing the super viruses or the super, um, I think viruses are the ones that you can't use antibiotics for, but you start seeing the super bugs, right? Nature is beyond our full comprehension, certainly at this time and probably ever. There's so much in play from the microbes in the soil 
to the microparticles in the air and how that all mixes together in the water. It's too big of a system for any one individual or institution to comprehend. And so the more we can trend towards trying to mimic nature, I believe the more success we're going to have. And I think that there are many ways that we can do that while still continuing to have the life that we think of as normal. In India, for example, they have all of the bridges that cross over their highways and freeways and things, their streets, because tigers need such a broad territory. And we were cutting off the mating pairs from each other. There are so many ways that we can do that. Utilizing rooftop gardening, the gorilla gardening, taking back the sidewalk plots from these manicured, not traditionally considered edible plants, right? Because actually many of the plants that we put into our manicured lawn settings, things like nasturtiums and pansies and lavender, all of those have edible parts. We discount many of what we consider to be ornamental plants as food-producing plants, but they actually are food-producing plants. And so these are all the different kinds of thoughts that we want to keep in mind while we explore all the different possibilities that are out there in trying to regain a natural and sustainable culture and earth going forward. This is something that we all have to invest in, or we're really not going to get anywhere. We've been trying to tell the corporations for decades now that this is what we want. It's time to do it ourselves. We need to stop looking outside of ourselves for the solution and start being some of that solution individually. And again, that is what Collectively Rewilding is all about, taking the fear and the unknown elements out of what we're trying to do and allowing each of us who have gone and explored elements of the natural world to come and share that with others. Everything from survival uh, tactics to no-till gardening to restoring gut health, all of these different things are a part of us collectively rewilding together. All right, let's look at five simple truths, and that is five simple truths about natural fertilizer amending. What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another very exciting episode right here on the MI Gardener channel. In today's episode, I'm going to be sharing with you the truth about adding coffee grounds and eggshells to your garden. Sure, they are a great resource and a lot of people do advocate using them, myself included. We use coffee grounds and eggshells in our garden whenever we have them available, but there are some things that you need to know about adding them to your soil that I don't think are widely talked enough about. So the first thing I want to mention is that coffee grounds and eggshells are a fantastic resource in your garden. I am by no means not advocating using them, in fact exactly the opposite. I do advocate using these things because they are free resources that can provide a ton of nutrients to your garden over time. And in that is kind of the fine print of what I'm going to say over time. So a lot of people, they think that adding coffee grounds and eggshells are going to be ready, or the nutrients are going to be ready right away. They add coffee grounds to a plant that might look a little yellow. 
and they wonder why the plant is not looking greener after you know a couple days or even a couple weeks. But the fact of the matter is, is that these, uh, these materials that you're adding to your garden, they need to be broken down in a process called weathering. Now, weathering happens through, uh, it can be rain and sun, just overall degradation, but also, more commonly, it takes place from microbial activity. The bacteria and fungi found in your soil uh, actually will go and feed on those, uh, on those materials and break them down. So they actually will, uh, will break down the materials and make the, uh, make the nutrients more plant available. You see uh, tomatoes or peppers or whatever plant you have growing. If you add a, you know, uh, a cup of coffee grounds around the base of each plant, um, the, the tomato plant, let's say, is not going to kind of register that there is nitrogen available in those coffee grounds. But this is true with anything. Anything that needs to be broken down or decomposed needs time to break down and weather and actually be uh, degraded down to its plant available form. That takes time. This happens with leaf mulch. This happens with compost, cow manure, uh, you know, um, uh, eggshells. It could be absolutely anything. Now, true, certain things do break down faster than others, and certain things like cow manure do have some plant-available nitrogen already there that's very readily available. And so, um, not really an apples-to-apples comparison, but, you know, if you were taking even things like grass clippings, there are, uh, it's a whole spectrum of breakdown and weathering times, and certain things take longer than others to break down and weather into their plant-available forms. And so this takes time. And how long does this typically take? Well, no, it's not a couple days. It's not even a couple weeks. Generally, for something like eggshells, the amount of time it takes for the, uh, for the eggshells to actually be broken down into its calcium, uh, into the calcium, uh, you know, plant available form of calcium, it actually needs to be broken down for about two years. So the common misconception about adding eggshells to your garden is that your plants, things like tomatoes, are going to benefit right away from things like blossom end rot. It's just not true. And I've seen this happen so many times where people have blossom end rot and they say, oh, just add eggshells. The fact of the matter is your tomato plants are going to be long gone, done producing, and the next season will roll around and that calcium will just start being plant available in your soil. Now, coffee grounds break down much quicker because rather than calcium, which is a very difficult uh, mineral to break down and, and weather, um, coffee grounds can be broken down much quicker. This is usually between four and six months to break down the coffee grounds to available nitrogen. Now again, this all depends on the amount of microbial activity in your soil. If you have above average uh, you know, microbial counts, say you're growing in a very, if you're growing in a very organic garden, you're feeding the soil constantly, you have lots of uh, microbial activity, it might be something more like two and a half to three months on the, you know, on the, the fastest end of the spectrum. And if it's you know, very barren, dry, dead soil, it might be somewhere along the lines of six months or longer. So it's just, you know, it varies with microbial activity, but do not expect adding, uh, you know, uh, coffee grounds and eggshells to happen or to have an effect right away. It takes time. A second really important note about adding coffee grounds and eggshells to your garden is make sure that you're increasing the surface area. You can do this by a few different ways. You can uh, take them and throw them into a blender. You can take them and throw them into a mortar and pestle. Uh, that's my preferred method if I'm going to add them into the garden because by increasing the surface area, you're actually decreasing the time that it takes for them to break down. 
So if you take, for instance, whole leaves, this applies to anything in the garden. If you take the whole form, let's say whole leaves, and you're trying to make compost, whole leaves will take about one to two years to completely break down into its fully decomposed form. However, you take those same leaves, you run them over with a lawnmower, you bag them up or you, you know, rake them up and then throw them into a compost pile, they're going to break down in about four to seven months versus one to two years. And so this is a dramatic increase in how fast your plants can actually obtain nutrients from whatever you're trying to break down. The same exact thing applies to eggshells and coffee grounds. Throw your eggshells in a, uh, throw your eggshells in a mortar and pestle and break them down into a powder or throw them into a blender and you are dramatically increasing the surface area rather than just throwing in whole eggshells. Whole eggshells will take about one to two years to fully break down, whereas eggshell powder only takes about three to seven months. Huge difference. And that's gonna make a huge difference in your garden as well. Just a little tip for you guys. Check out these cucumbers. How beautiful those are. Just picked those. I was out here and I just uh, happened to glance down and noticed I had some gorgeous, gorgeous cucumbers. So beautiful. That's going in our dinner tonight. Now, the third thing I wanted to mention with adding coffee grounds and eggshells, it's very, very important, is that you sterilize. Now, sterilizing whatever you're adding to the garden, um, just make sure that there's no pathogens or you know, harmful bacterias that are going to be entering your garden and potentially entering your food uh, that you're going to eat later on. This is most commonly you know, seen with eggshells, things like salmonella. You really want to make sure that you're sterilizing your eggshells. Now, coffee grounds, you don't have to worry. Coffee grounds are they're fairly sterile and I've never had to worry about this. But with things like eggshells, it is very important that you throw them in the oven at least for you know, five, 10 minutes at 350 degrees just to really kill off any chance of salmonella. And that way, uh, you know, you're not getting it into your soil. And that way, if the soil splashes up on, the, on the, um, you know, the, the fruit or the leaves, that you're not going to ingest that or feed that to your family. Just something to take into consideration. And I know that a lot of people do mention that, but I really just, I cannot strongly uh, recommend it enough because having you know, a home garden, the whole point is that you know, what's being, uh, you know what you're feeding your plants with, you know what you're spraying on your plants, and you know what your family's eating. But you could potentially, you know, um, inadvertently, you could potentially be uh, giving your plants a really, really nasty foodborne illness by, uh, by not properly sterilizing your eggshells. So just keep that in mind, not fear-mongering, it's just something that I would highly recommend. All right, let's see if there's any more cucumbers over here. Now that I've found these two, I wanna make sure that there's no more. I just picked, the thing that's so crazy about cucumbers is you can pick them and then like two days later, if you've missed one, oh yeah, for sure. Oh my goodness, there's actually quite a few in here. These things are beautiful. So the fourth thing to note, look at that cucumber. <laughs> look at that cucumber. Whoa, that is a beautiful one. Got a little, got, got a little away from me, but that is a nice cucumber haul. So the fourth thing I was going to mention with adding coffee grounds to your garden, not as much eggshells in this case, but coffee grounds, is that you don't have to worry about pH swings. So many people worry when they add coffee grounds and they ask, is adding coffee grounds going to change the pH of my soil? And the answer is no. Yes, coffee is acidic. However, coffee grounds are not. And that's because most of the, most of the acidity is actually washed through the grounds into the coffee that you drank. 
And so if you, th if you add things like coffee grounds to uh, blueberry plants or potatoes or tomatoes, acid-loving plants, there's going to be absolutely no benefit with adding coffee grounds to those plants because there's no acid really left in the material. It's been washed through. So, but on the flip side, if you're concerned about adding acid to your soil, there's really no worry because, again, it's been washed through the grounds. But that's a very common misconception that adding coffee grounds can overly acidify your soil. Just not true, does not happen. Just thought I'd clear that up. All right, and the fifth and final thing that I thought I'd mention is that coffee grounds and eggshells do not replace any other fertilizer in our garden, and I'll explain why. Coffee grounds and eggshells are very specific at what they feed. So coffee grounds have nitrogen, eggshells are calcium, and they don't really give a whole lot of anything else. They're not very well balanced. And so the garden, if you want a very healthy and, you know, and fertile garden, a garden needs a well-balanced fertilizer. So we use things like Trifecta Plus, compost, and worm castings. We're very open and transparent about those three things that we use in our garden. Now we will use things like coffee grounds and eggshells when we have them because those are used as supplements. Those are used as amendments in our garden to you know, just further uh, better our soil quality and further prevent any nutrient issues down the road. So adding them to your soil is not a bad thing, but relying solely on them can be a negative thing because plants, they take so many nutrients to survive and thrive. You see this cucumber here looks amazing, doesn't it? Absolutely amazing. It does not rely solely on nitrogen and uh, calcium. It needs nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, potassium, calcium, magnesium, iron, uh, zinc, uh, copper. It needs all these tiny little trace minerals, and, and there's so many of them out there. There's over 75 different trace minerals that these plants can uptake. And so if you're only focusing on two out of 75, you're not even covering not even 5% of the overall uh, spectrum of nutrients. And so it's not very well balanced. And so I would always recommend adding them as a supplement, but never leaning solely on them. Now, if you're making a well-balanced compost, that could be terrific. You know, if you're having worm castings and you're feeding your worms or you're getting them from a good source that feeds them a well-balanced diet, that can be a great, you know, that can be a great thing as well. Or if you're using a well-balanced organic fertilizer to feed your garden, that can be terrific as well. Um, but, you know, just like I said, relying only on those, it's like, uh, it's like needing a multivitamin, but just taking a vitamin C supplement. It's not as well-balanced as a multivitamin. So just keep that in mind. That's just, you know, my opinion and something that I've found through, uh, you know, through my hands-on experience in the garden. And it's just something that I thought I'd pass on to you guys. So, that's all I've got for you today. I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you learned something new. If you did, make sure to throw a like up there. It really helps me out. Also, share this video with a friend if you think they'd enjoy it. But that's all I got for you guys today. As always, this is Luke from the My Gardener channel, reminding you to grow big or go home, and we'll catch you all later. See ya. Bye. Okay, I think I'm back on. I'm learning how the mute and the unmute button work. So that was an excellent piece by M.I. Gardner. He's a Michigan gardener. That's the M.I. for his M.I. Gardener. And he is very in-depth. I really enjoy listening to him talk about the history of the genetics of plants and everything. It's really amazing. And, of course, growing in Michigan is a lot more challenging than growing in California. So I think that 
listening to someone in such an extreme environment and their successes can really be encouraging. When you're talking about natural fertilizer, absolutely, the coffee grounds and eggshells are only going to do so much. There are other things that you can do along those lines in the um, natural fertilizer world that will increase the content of nutrients that you're adding. Some of them, banana peels, are a pretty common thing that people um, talk about. I think this is my article here. Let me pull it up. Yes. Okay. And so these are 10 options. I'm pretty sure coffee grounds and eggshells are talked about in here. Yes, they are. They also talk about, like I said, banana peels, and that's potassium. There's conjecture that green tea will add nutrients to the soil. I couldn't find very much in the scientific literature to back this up. But it's something that they've been doing in Asian communities for a very long time. So there's probably some truth to adding green tea to your soil for acidifying the soil. So if you are looking to help increase the acidity for things like your tomatoes, you might try using a little bit of green tea. Now, when we're talking about the levels of decomposition and how quickly they're going to be plant available, it would be my conjecture that green tea would be more quickly available. Molasses, also again, probably a little more quickly available. That is to add carbon, iron, and sulfur. There are other things added with molasses. Epsom salt for magnesium and sulfur. Wood ashes, which you do have to be very careful for, they can um, increase the alkalinity of your soil to a negative level, right? That's what they're for. So you want to be very careful when you use wet ashes. You want to be testing your soil and finding out what is actually going to help the soil, not hurt the soil. Gelatin powder for a nitrogen boost. Used cooking water for a general dose of nutrients. Of course, making sure that cooking water doesn't include salt, especially. And then it recommends corn gluten meal for extra nitrogen. So that's a lot of variety to your homemade nutrients. That doesn't mean that you might not still need to add something like worm casting. But that does increase it beyond simply nitrogen and calcium. And so when you're using these types of natural fertilizers, there are different ways to go about utilizing them. You can... Increase the surfaces or not, you can put them into a compost heap and add them as soil after it's all done decomposting. When you're doing it for your home garden, the hope is to move towards more organic produce. That's a big difference between natural homemade fertilizers and store-bought chemical fertilizers. Um, I'm trying to get to the recipe in this article. We won't read the whole article. This is important though. The most important part in understanding how to fertilize your houseplants, I don't really enjoy houseplants. My thumb is not green once it comes indoors. But that's learning what the NPK ratio means. N, Nancy, P, Paul, K, Kilo, NPK ratio, and what it's doing. So NPK are the elemental names for the nutrients nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. 
There are so many more nutrients than that, and it mentions that here. While there are many different important micronutrients which are involved in healthy plant growth, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium are considered the big three. Um, nitrogen is going to really help with the growth of stems and foliage. We had a garden in Cortez, Colorado, and it had a really high nitrogen content. So we didn't end up with a tremendous amount of produce, but the leaves were glorious on our squash plants. It was almost like a jungle plant. They were so beautiful. Phosphorus, the P in NPK, um, is good for the roots and flower production. And potassium, um, it's, it says that it's going to help the plants thrive in a more indirect way. It helps to increase plant hardiness by providing insect and disease resistance, along with efficient water use. Plants deficient in potassium will grow much slower and appear unhealthy with yellowing leaves. And then it's just it's going to walk through their listing of items a little more in depth, okay? Um, it says that eggshells also contain uh, trace amounts of elements like nitrogen, zinc, and phosphorus, uh, phosphoric acid, rinsing, and as MI Gardener recommends, putting in uh, eggshells in the oven for five to 10 minutes at 350 degrees to make sure that you don't have any mold or salmonella. Once you have enough shells that you can grind them, uh, they actually say a rolling pin inside their freezer bag or a coffee grinder. I prefer MI Gardener's uh, style. I like the mortar and pestle. I'm old fashioned, I guess. You can either mix some eggshells right into the soil as you pot your plant or incorporate them into the soil surface of an existing plant. Always remember to avoid working the soil too deep with an existing plant, making sure not to harm the roots. Then when you're going to work with banana peels, uh, it says it's especially helpful for roses. Um, you can create a sort of banana peel tea. That's probably the most appealing method to me. Saving old banana peels in a jar of water for a few days will infuse nutrients from the peels into the water. This infused water can then be used to water your plants. Again, it would be my guess that those nutrients would be much more readily available to your plants than would be coffee grounds or even grinding up those eggshells, right? You can also puree the banana peels in water and use it immediately. You can even cut the banana peels into pieces to incorporate them into the soil service. However, that would probably be more towards your outdoor plants, not for house plants. Um, when you're using the coffee grounds, we already went over that pretty well. It does add here that it is especially helpful for plants that are, and this is funny, this is where MI Gardener is going to argue with them, that are acidic like fruit-bearing trees, begonias, African violets, and roses. So if MI Gardener has it right and you're looking for that acid, you might try that green tea method instead of the coffee grounds. Let's just do a search really quickly and see if coffee grounds contain a high level of acidity. Um, but let's go to Google Scholar to do it. Okay, so we're just going to find a bunch of articles that argue about it. Let's see if there are any scientific literature pieces that we can find. Let's see here. 
they didn't study it the way I wanted them to, unfortunately. So let's go back to uh, regular Google and see what we find there. So here's from the Oregon State University. Contrary to popular belief, it's a myth that coffee grounds are acidic and will lower the pH of the soil. After brewing, the grounds are close to pH neutral between 6.5 and 6.8. So, MI Gardener is backed up. I'm going to go with Oregon State University over an article written um, just as a blog, right? That's where we want to vet the sources that we utilize. I'm reading to you from a blog. I find value in this blog. However, when I'm having two different theories that are being presented to me, I'm going to go and do a little bit more research to determine what side I fall on. Here again, I'm going to fall on the side of MI Gardener. Your coffee grounds are not going to help increase acidity to your soil. Now, let's go ahead. I've already searched Google Scholar for articles about adding tea. Um, let's see if we can find any more comparable, like, university pieces. I wasn't able to last time, but let's just try one more time. Is green tea... high in acidity? Let's say that. I think that that would actually be, green tea, for example, is known to be less acidic than black tea with a pH of 7 to 10. Herbal teals like chamomile tea, mint tea, and fennel teas are very close to neutral, while fruit teas like blackberry and rosehip are very acidic, ranging from 2 to 3 on the pH scale. So it seems to me, if we're going to accept the idea that these huge, huge, swaths of time within aging communities believe that adding tea to the soil would add this acid, I would say that if you wanted to make a test out of this to play with a variety of these different sorts of teas to produce the types of results that you're looking for. Even with these herbal teals like chamomile, mint, and fennel that are close to neutral, there's going to be nutrients, macro and micronutrients, most likely, in that tea. So you could still see what kind of a result you had. I would guess, again, this is just one of those guesses that we have to play out in reality to see what the outcome is. But I would guess that the nutrients in these teas is much more readily available. It would be a really neat experiment to play with a variety of teas for a variety of results. Acid-loving plants, going with black tea, it sounds like, is going to be a possible option. Green tea being a little bit lower, but still having a high pH. But it says that green tea is a pH of 7 to 10, less, than as, uh, less acidic than black tea. So black tea is going to be higher. Um, there's this pH scale. Let's see if it's very readable. Okay, so it's saying that black tea is 4.9 to 5.55 on the scale. So that would have to be the acid side of it. Then you have oolong tea. Oh, they don't have it in any kind of order at all. This is a really bad kind of a scale. 
Okay, oolong tea can go anywhere from 5.9 to 8.2. Herbal teas, like they mentioned, are 6 to 7. Yerba mate is also 6 to 7. White tea can go from 6.9 to 9.7. Green tea, as they mention here, is 7 to 10. And then it says ruibos. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Tea is at a 9 in acidity. So they're saying that black tea is less acidic than green tea with this other pH scale over here. Again, with so many different pieces and contradictory pieces of information being thrown at us all of the time, trying it ourselves will determine our best methods and what comes of this for us in our gardens. We have to start with something. So starting with the literature that is and building on that with our own experiential knowledge is about the only way that we have to go around all of this contradictory information that we're given. But I definitely think I'm going to try that. I do want to try some homemade fertilizer. I'm just really against chemicals. I want to do anything always that I can to avoid anything that was created in a lab. And so I'm really going to play with these natural fertilizers and learning what type of amendment produces what result is a huge part of that. For instance, if we just made an overall compost tea that included both green tea and the, um, which one was it that produced alkalinity? The ashes, wood ashes. So if we just mixed these different components into a compost tea, we probably wouldn't get the results we want. We need to know what it is that we're putting into the soil and why that is going to benefit that soil. You can change the composition of any soil, right, wrong, or otherwise. But if you want to have a better result, you need to understand the composition that your soil already is, which there are tests out on the market, very affordable tests that you can do at home. Um, I have a kit here that I'm going to be delving into this summer. I was hoping to do it this spring before I started my garden. But when you first come onto a property, there's just always so much to do. I wasn't able to get around to it. That was one of the reasons I just went mostly with wildflowers and clovers because they can grow in such a large variety of poor soil conditions. And so you have your chemical testers. I also have a little stick in the ground tester that gives me an idea of the pH of the soil, the light in that area, and the moisture retention for that plot of soil that it's testing at that time. And it was really reasonable as well. There are ways for us to determine and know these things. We don't have to just guess. Yes, some of what we're doing is going to be guesswork and uh, practical testing of theories. However, there are things that we can, we can actually know. And that is one of them that we can know. We can know the actual pH of our soil from simple tests that we can do at home. There are even those online tests that will give you a little bit of an idea. Um, there's some great pieces that you can do for water retention through home tests. A lot of great information out there. Definitely start learning the compositions of the different niches within your available soil. So, for instance, when I say a niche, 
there are even on a regular town property for a home there are different growing conditions this property that i'm on right now has some extreme examples of that we're in a stick built home that's been split into two apartments the upper level and the lower level and we're in the lower level when they did all that construction to create an exit for this lower level so that it could be put into two apartments, they dug down into the soil and then they put a fence all around this very small plot within the overall backyard. The light pine colored, I'm not sure exactly what wood it is, but it's a light wood color. It really bounces the sun back down onto those plants. And it does that on both sides, but especially on, let's see, the, yes, the south-facing side. It bakes that soil. It was very hard to keep anything alive in that stretch during the heat wave. Now, as I, retain, as I increase the health of the soil, as I increase the um, pores, as I decrease the compaction and increase the pores within the soil, as more roots spread through there, both that are living and communicating and those that have died and are biodegrading, as those biodegrade, they leave air pockets. So as all of this is occurring, it will slowly start to alter the composition of the soil. As it's doing that, you want to continue to test, and you can direct the ways that you want that soil composition to go. So I would like to have some native rose bushes here on this property. That's where I might want to start putting out some of that green tea, perhaps, and just get a little bit of acidity built up into that area of the garden. Another part of that is to look for plants that can companion plants. For those rose plants what other plants underneath should i grow as a ground cover that will well benefit from that more acidic soil and so these are all the types of things that we want to look at we can look here in this article it's recommending fruit bearing trees which that's not really where i'm trying to go with where i'm going to place the rose bush begonias african violets and roses all together, right? So um, I'm not sure. I've never grown begonias. Let's see what the begonias have as a height level. All right. It looks like they're maybe approaching a foot or so at the tallest. So that would be a really nice plant to complement. And also uh, perhaps some violets. A little bit further out so that you have that biodiversity that's all going to benefit from that slightly more acidic soil that could be very beautiful those are the kinds of thoughts that we want to think about while we're working towards a healthier composition for our soil again tomatoes like that acid I might have a tomato plant or two if I weren't in another animal yard I too am in a situation where this backyard has been a dog yard for several large dogs. I'm not sure. I think two or three of them. My neighbor was telling me about the, the former residents here, right? And there were three dogs probably back there leaving their mess. There's also 
two cats in the house to the east and two cats in the house to the west that very much consider this yard a part of their territory. And now I have two dogs and a cat. So our soil is not going to be good for gardening purposes. If we wanted to eat the produce off of this particular plot of land right away, we would need to do raised garden beds where we introduced several feet of soil. So where the majority of the root structure for those plants wasn't really going to get down into the all ready provided soil structure. Luckily, Missy Folds doesn't have that. She's going to be able to start eliminating the conditions that make her soil less than ideal for a garden and be able to control going forward, providing a more healthy soil structure for her purposes. For our purposes, we want to get the soil healthy. We want to introduce some native plants. We want to get rid of all of the compaction. It wasn't just filler dirt on this little interior plot with all of the baking plants from the, the fence area. It's also a mix of something they've just dumped there. It was unidentifiable. I'm guessing it was actual breakdown of some of the building elements for the remodel that they did, as well as maybe some actual chemical contaminant type nasty, nasty so-called dirt. Really disgusting stuff. As it so happens, that's where I planted my sunflowers, not knowing that sunflowers actually pull chemical pollutants from the soil. It was just a fortuitous happenstance. I planted the sunflowers where they could do the most damage. And I will tell you, those sunflowers suffered for the work that they did. They all ended up canted over. There's only one that's still partially standing. They started flowers and the flowers just kind of died out. They never got to seed producing conditions. The leaves are all fried, um, even beyond the heat wave. The leaves kept this fried, frayed, nasty look to them. And that is all because they were pulling the actual chemical pollutants out of the soil. So it is such a beneficial process. I feel so bad for those poor sunflowers. They just suffered all year long. But that soil is going to be so much healthier for having them do that very necessary job. I'm definitely going to plant another row of sunflowers in that same area. However, I'm going to transfer the type of sunflowers. I tried for the mammoth sunflowers. For those of you that are familiar, they grow Oh, goodness, they can get up to seven feet tall, I think, maybe a little taller, and their flower heads are huge. Dinner-sized plates, right, um, up to almost a foot in diameter for these huge sunflower heads. And they never reached even probably five and a half feet. The flower heads only ever got to about maybe three inches in diameter. Well, that's because they were in such poor soil. So to help the soil and give the sunflowers themselves a little bit of a better chance to struggle less is to grow some more average-sized sunflowers. Um, and I'm going to put a little bit of a variety out there as well, again, going for that biodiversity. I had bi biodiversity in the plants, but I didn't have biodiversity amongst the sunflowers. Well, I'm guessing that each sunflower will probably pull different levels and different types of chemical pollutants out of the soil. Again, it's all this guesswork that we're working through. 
So I want to put out a little bit of a variety. I can't put too many. The sunflowers are excellent for the pollinators and I absolutely love that, but they do keep the wasps going um, and the yellow jacket hornet type pollinators all year long. So I don't want them right up on my walkway and there's only about a three foot garden plot there. So the back foot, foot and a half, I'm going to have sunflowers in so that it'll still keep pulling all those nasty pollutants out of the soil. And it just so happens that's where the, the primary amount of that worst of the worst soil happens to be. We're also going to change the structure of the soil here a little bit to use it specifically as flood control. As I've mentioned, we went through some flooding and with us being in the lower half of this house, in the basement half of this house, we had to deal with that. We had a small amount of flood water come into our apartment. Um, it was very easily dealt with. There was no structural damage. We just had to dry it up and sop it up and figure out something to block the water off. One of the things that we're going to do is to really raise up in a sloping pattern both areas on each side of the walkway leading down into our apartment. We're going to put cylinder blocks at the base and then just layer it up with soil and some mulch on the top, of course, and then get that root structure going in to hold it so that when the floodwaters come back, if they do while we're here or for the next participants in this property, there's going to be some additional natural elements to keep those floodwaters from reaching the apartment across the walkway itself, we'll still have to have some sort of a barrier, whether we do something permanent or place sandbags, it will work to keep that water back with just that little bit of non-soil-based flood control. When we talk about the tsunamis that have hit all around the globe and just devastated these small islands, one of the reasons they were so badly devastated is because we've destroyed their natural biomes. We've taken the huge trees that used to reside in much of the coastal areas and cut them down and all of the natural plant structures, all of these things that were, yes, a part of flood control and we've removed them. So there's no natural barrier to these huge waves that are coming in. And that is one of the reasons for the levels of devastation that we've seen in Thailand. And, oh goodness, I'm not good with geography, but all of these horrible, horrible flooding situations that we've dealt with in the last 20 years. I think maybe Puerto Rico has gone through some of it. It's just an unfortunate circumstance that the people on the ground are having to deal with. And so much of the time, it isn't something that they themselves chose to do. It was done to them and to the land that they reside in, and now they're dealing with the consequences. So understanding soil and how it keeps us safe on so many levels and benefits our health is such an important part of any sort of reclaiming of nature, reclaiming of soil, reclaiming of sustainability, reclaiming of ourselves. Understanding the soil, like understanding the water and the air, those are our base elements of life. And we, if we don't have viable soil, we aren't going to have viable life for very much longer. Losing literal thousands of tons of soil every year 
is casting doubt on the future viability of life on this planet. The soil and the ocean and the fresh water and the air all interact together. It's another sort of symbiotic relationship. And when the health of one suffers, the health of them all will suffer. I hope I've given you some idea of why I think soil is such an important part of what we need to think about when we are approaching healing the land that we've destroyed as one species against all the other species on this planet. In the end, life will probably win, and we probably aren't powerful enough to stop life from existing on this planet, but we may be powerful enough to stop being able to exist ourselves as life on this planet. And so when anybody tells you that that's not something that they're worried about or that, you know, you need to just go live in a cave if you're so worried about it, all of these things, well, I'll tell you what, if somebody offered me a southwest-facing cave in some arable soil, I would jump on that and I would go live in a cave tomorrow. It is not about environmentalism. There are different sides to how we see the slow degradation of our planet. That is not the point. We don't need to worry about that. We just need to worry about moving forward to more sustainable patterns. Don't get caught up in the argument. Simply let them know that it isn't about a political ideology. It's about the fact that you want to know that the soil that you're eating from, that the water that you're drinking from, is doing your body health and not harm. So if they tell you that they're not concerned about that, you might just ask if they're aware of what happens when there are no more bees and what happens when there are no more topsoil. And then just move on because you've got rewilding work to do. The arguments aren't worth it. Individually, we can all make a difference. All we need to do is get out there and get a little bit dirty. Interacting with the soil will improve your day, will improve your health, will improve your food quality if you choose to interact with your food. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a child's very unhappy face slowly become an excited face simply by interacting with the foods that they don't want to eat. When a child grows broccoli, especially from a seed, right? Broccoli, I believe, is another one of those really small seeds. But when they can see this teeny tiny seed grow into this full plant, they are going to be so much more interested in trying that food. It takes a child up to a thousand interactions with a food in order to be receptive to it. That is a part of becoming more accepting of our foods. Getting back in touch with their actual life cycles. I really love to show children that are old enough, right? You've got to make sure that they're really able to comprehend the difference between an edible and a non-edible plant. 
And once they've reached that point, I really love to show children how many different plants in their immediate environment are actually edible. We've mentioned a few of them. The um, violets, violet flowers are edible. Sunflowers, of course sunflower seeds are edible, but sunflower seedlings are edible. Clover, we know that you can go to the store and buy clover sprouts. Well, it therefore then correlates that the clover that's growing on our property is edible. Seeing a child understand that they can eat the nasturtium plant entirely, stems, flowers, and leaves, just opens up this huge world for children. And it's actually very enlightening to most adults. When we look at the plants that we put into our ornamental arrangements, we don't realize that it is a natural process for us to interact with plants that are beneficial to us. We naturally are drawn to plants that are edible or medicinal or are good for, um, what's another example? Uh, the things that are good actually for their odor, right? These things have developed with our bodies, with our genomes, and we more intuitively are drawn to plants that are good for us. So many of the plants that we think of as simply ornamental are so much more than ornamental. <clears throat> roses are a good example. I have been infatuated with roses since I was small. And I moved away from them in my teen years because I was really upset. I didn't think that they were a viable plant for use. I thought they were just ornamental. And then I started thinking about all of the books that I had read from a middle age perspective or time period and all of the times they washed their hands in rose water. And that's where it started me taking the roses back. I realized, wait a minute, that is because it has properties that help to clean your hands. Roses are antibacterial and antimicrobial. I don't remember if they're antifungal or not, but when you wash your hands in rose petal water, you are actually getting rid of harmful bacteria. It's amazing. Rosehip tea is one of the teas that will bring vitamin C into our bodies when the plants are dying down or dormant in the winter. They have a ton of vitamin C in them. Roses are edible. Most, if not all roses, let's look, I believe all roses, the petals are edible. They're all edible, okay? Um, I don't know if the whole rose is edible, but I know the flower petals are edible. And according to this article, all of those flower petals are edible. I would want to do some more research myself before I just decided that that was all good. But again, I'm seeing article after article confirming that all rose petals, this one is more specific. It says all rose petals are edible as are the leaves, hips, and buds. It does not mention stems. It does not mention roots, right? But they are all edible as a flower. Amazing. So 
so many uses for these plants that we simply consider ornamental. Um, pine, pine needles are another excellent source of vitamin C in the beginning of spring or in the dark of winter before we had all of the food storage that we had today, you could go and pick your pine needles and brew them as a tea and get that vitamin C to battle scurvy and all of these other things that a lack of vitamin C does to our body, okay? We are more naturally drawn to the plants that have benefit. So those plants that our ancestors brought over that we now consider invasive and that they may be, they were brought here because they had value. I believe purse lane, shepherd's purse, and lamb's quarter were all introduced by people coming to this continent from somewhere else. They were brought here for a reason. They have edible and or medicinal qualities. Some of them have qualities that would repel Bugs, if you dried them and laid them in there, you know, of course, we don't want to go back to rushes all over the floor. That has its own issues. But if you put little sachets of these plants around your baseboards, it helps to keep out mice and spiders and other undesirable pests for your house, right? Have a purpose. It's amazing. All of it has a purpose. The soil itself beyond just being a system that supports everything else in the world, has specific purposes. Those microbes healing us with our interaction with the soil, acidic and alkali soils. In my hometown of Cortez, Colorado, and all throughout the Four Corners area, they consider alkali soils unclaimable, unusable. You can bring acidity back into those alkalized areas. We have to recognize if we're going to create the damage, we have to find a way to heal that damage. All really, really wonderfully interesting challenges. When I get overwhelmed at how many um, pundits are on air claiming that the end of the world is coming and all these various fashions, Something that helps to keep me sane and healthy is to do what I can. And healing the soil that's within your physical sphere is a very simple way to start interacting with the world so that at least when you go to bed at night, you know you're doing what you can to make a future possible for all of us. All right. We're running out of time. I'd love to hear anybody's thoughts on all of these topics that we've covered. I think that they're becoming more and more common. Whenever I started talking about soil structure back in the early 2000s, and I would try to explain why till tilling was a bad idea, oh, I just got the most outraged looks. I'm from a farming community. And the just incredulous faces and the arguments the instantaneous defense of breaking up the soil structure, that's receded. I don't see that very often. And I think that's wonderful to see our collective knowledge and understanding about how natural systems work, gaining more and more widespread traction is really exciting. 
I hope that you see that in your own life too. When you're out talking about different types of sustainable thought processes, different natural thought processes, I hope that you receive more positive feedback than negative feedback. Let's go ahead. I have one more area that I want to share with you guys from uh, Greening the West Texas Desert with Gerard Kenyatta Hay. It's a two-part piece here. He gets interrupted. His internet is not always solid. But let's listen to how somebody in the off-grid world structures their day. Boom. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's Gerard Green, West Texas, or my portion of it. And I guess, I mean, now that I've been out here, what, three, almost four years, something like that, um, and, and that's in man talk, so I've probably been out here about two years. <laughs> I actually, I don't know. I don't know. It's not the point. Um, I've been out here long enough that uh, I've gone past the surviving portion of this adventure into thriving. Um, you know, and so, you know, living off-grid is one thing. Thriving off-grid is another. So, you know, there are people who seek to to survive off-grid, and that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's never been my plan. You know, being an automation engineer my entire life, my my goal is automating what I can. It's just my opinion without avoiding the politics, because I don't get into politics at all. I have no interest in the political system in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I largely started plotting this voyage when I realized that we have the means to automate our world, and we are not. Or we are, but we're letting big corporations do it, and it's for the sake of the few. It's not for the sake of the many. And so I can't be a part of that, just because of the culture of my family and the belief systems that I have. So I left corporate America uh, to automate and give away what uh, what I developed. So without going into the history of me working in corporate America and, and, and doing the contracting I've done, I kind of just wanted to talk about, like, my day and how it goes. Um, so I did say I'm going to start doing more videos I really don't know the best format and how to get started, but, you know, sometimes in life you just do it. I mean, I'm a raw person. I appreciate raw. So if just me talking in front of a camera and eventually flipping images, I'm in my office. I'll show you a little bit of it. Uh, if that doesn't work for you, there are other channels. Appreciate you. Love you. Um, but I just, I, I'm just giving raw information. I'm, I'm not polished. I'm not a YouTuber. I'm not any of that. I'm just doing what I feel I, I'm supposed to be doing on this planet. So anyway, oh, my morning waking up. I've never shared anything like that. So my mornings now, and, and we're we're getting into summer now, so it's it's been over 110 pretty much for the last, since I can remember, 10 days or so we're in a heat wave. Um, I try to do as much as I can in the morning. Uh, when it gets real, real hot, if I got things to do outside, I'm outside. If I'm shoveling, digging, moving boulders, whatever I got to do, driving a bobcat, fixing trailers, trucks, whatever's breaking down on me, and I've had a whole bunch of mechanical issues lately, so I, I, I do what I have to do. But if I have a choice, I only work in the desert two or three days, you know, in a row, and then I kind of take a break, and I'll drive to town, get water. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go. Actually, I, sometimes I'll camp out in a cafe. 
write some software. I'll come hide in the cob house. Um, but you want to get away from the heat and the element. Again, out here, health is the most important thing you got going. You got to keep your health. You got to eat healthy. You got to live healthy. You got to be safe. Um, your appendages that you need, two arms, two legs, hopefully you got those. Um, thumbs, don't hurt your thumbs. Always wear gloves. Uh, that's a big issue. And your feet. Feet are huge. And so it's weird that I'm explaining feet, <laughs> living off grid and thumbs. But when I wake up, the first thing I do is I make my coffee. I do my morning constitution. Usually it's when the sun comes up. Now it's when that damn rooster, that's exactly what he sounds like, that little guy. He has not figured out how to do a, a, a morning call yet, but he'll figure that out. But I wake up when the rooster crows, which is just before sunrise. Make my coffee. I come sit here in my office. Ah, I've been doing videos for a minute, and that's that same uh, bamboo and paper background that I've had um, had for over 10 years. Uh, sorry, but uh, I know the video just cut out. It does that when the phone jumps to the Mexican towers. I really, really hate that. I get a warning pop up and it stops videos. I really need Samsung to fix that. I don't actually care that I'm roaming. <laughs> Like that, I literally, I'm gonna be honest with you guys. That Samsung pop up, and I know you guys can't see. That thing has literally almost killed me a few times. That thing pops up at the wrong moment when I'm doing things that are quite important. But anyway, it's kind of my office. I come sit in here. Uh, I'm not even sure what I can really show, but my workbench is next to me, and I've got a lot of things on there that would be community violations. So I can't really show you. <laughs> It when you live in the wild, you got to have the tools that you need in the wild, and uh, you know most people live in suburbia, so you know um, community violations on all these platforms cater to those who live on grid and safer communities. If you feel financial, <laughs> finan uh, banks, uh, financial banks running run, running our world uh, safe. But anyway, so I can't really show you that. But I mean, I've got my. Uh, uh, welding stuff. I've got my clippers. Usually, when I sit here in the morning, and I'm and I'm kind of looking at the table. I wish I kind of could remove some of the stuff I'm not supposed to show. Uh, I'll just show you in general. Blah 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 blah. blah. It's got a lot of stuff on there. <laughs> and so I clean my tools because you always got to make sure you got a clean tool out here. Uh, you never want to get into a scenario where you need a tool and it does not work especially a tool that's used in emergencies that you carry on your hip. So I got that. I got my shaving stuff. I shave every morning. Did not shave this morning yet. I got my, my little crimpers I use for, uh, this is actually used for uh, 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 grafting trees, but I'll explain that later. I use it mostly for scarifying seeds because I'm planting seeds. The most important tree out here to me are mesquite, palo verde, uh, and they're uh, Lucina. I forgot exactly what species of Lucina. But anyway, they grow really, really well out here, including fig. Um, a lot of these come back. There's another tropical I have that grows and uh, dies back in the winter, comes back, but it's got a full root system, so it grows really fast. I forgot the name of it. I might, it might be the Chinese princess the tree, common name. But anyway, um, so I sit here, I scarify seeds, you know, because I'm always planting every single day. 
and I always put trees in the ground. I plant in, in what I'm calling a, a, a seed bomb method where I don't plant one seed in a hole. I plant multiple seeds in a hole. You know, I plant what I'm eating for that year. I plant. I try to plant a perennial bush that will come back for next year. And I plant a tree that over the long term, multiple years, will be shade and that area will be reclaimed and, you know, desertification in that area, bringing the shade, which you guys, if you know about that, uh, will have been done. So putting a forest out here is what I do. So I plan my day out is the point. I sit here. I don't turn on the TV because I don't watch TV, but I got a big, massive, that was that 55, 60-inch screen TV I've got mounted in the greenhouse where uh, eventually I'll show images or something behind me. Uh, I want to get to a place where I can do regular videos in a format that's easy for people to digest the information. I don't know how to do that yet, but I'm, I'm working out some, some thoughts that I have. Uh, and I got my laptop in front of me. And so I sit here, I drink my coffee. I'll check the weather because the weather determines what I can do and what should be a priority. If it's going to be hot, uh, what I can do, I've got to get done early in the day or later in the afternoon. If it's going to be rainy, I usually start working on waterworks, getting ready for pumping water out of the, uh, the dammed areas and the arroyos into the ponds. Uh, prepping the greenhouse, I have not solidified on a greenhouse roof. I've only decided we're not going to run with plastic long term. Not in greenhouses that uh, people live in, anyway. Um, plastic is fine, but the sun out here is real hard on plastic. Um, you can buy real high-quality plastics that they say last 10 years, and you might get 10 years out of it, but the wind is not going to see it that way. The sun may not do the damage through UV, but the wind is going to get you. So it's just, to me, I don't think it's worth it out here to have a plastic roof. So the plastic roof on the greenhouse is coming down, and there are some new plans for uh, a different roof. But anyway, and so I look at the weather. I go through my priorities on uh, temperature. That determines what I'm doing a lot for the day. What broke yesterday determines that as well. What's got to get fixed for requisites. So I brought all that corporate America stuff with me in terms of planning my day out. And once I have my priorities set, then that determines the clothes I wear. So, yes, I said bucket naked <laughs> in the greenhouse, drinking my coffee till I decide what I need to get done for the day. Um, uh, we won't go through vitamin D, vitamin D3, and the only way you can get into your immune system is through your skin. We won't go through all that. You can look that up if you want. But everybody should spend a, a at least a good hour every single day in the sun and their body just taking in natural sunlight. Uh, anyway, um and so, today I've decided, uh, oh, goodness gracious, no, I shouldn't do that. I just thought about that. You can't really tell people where you're going to be and what you're doing. But what I'm, if I were driving the Bobcat in the morning, which I very rarely do because I can drive the Bobcat in the heat of the day and remain cool, uh, I, do wanna, I do need to work on the Bobcat a little bit today. So I want to spend about two hours working on some new dams. Um, uh, uh, but if I were doing these other things, so if, if I were riding the Bobcat in the morning, I'd be putting on my tennis shoes because you don't drive the Bobcat too well in boots. This is a very small Bobcat. It's a pole man's machine. <laughs> uh, one day when I grow up, I'll buy me a rich daddy Bobcat, but right now I got a pole man's Bobcat, but she is a mule. She kicks butt. You know, I, I spent a lot of time repairing her repairing her but they they never make anything the way they used to no computers nothing of that it's a it's a battery an engine hydraulic pump and that sucker just does what she's supposed to do heavy piece of equipment love her to death 
uh, even though she was made before I was born. But I wear tennis shoes. If I'm working in the desert, if I, if I were working on check dams or in the arroyos uh, or in the bush, I'd be wearing my boots, the boots um, with very thick soles. Mesquites can go through your boots. I've already had multiple mesquite thorns through my feet, and I prefer not to do that again. One went all the way, well, it went so deep in, my sandals stuck to my foot. That's where all the blood poured out. You don't want to do that again. Um, so, you know, so if I'm going to be out, you know, in the wild where I haven't cleared area, uh, stepping on mesquite and ocotillo, I, I definitely want to have on boots at the base that have very thick rubber. Um, if I'm doing mechanic work in, uh, 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 underneath heavy things, working with heavy things, I always wear my steel-toed boots. If it's in snow, obviously, or not snow, or early in the morning when there can be snow on the ground, which is very rare, I do have snow boots. If it's going to be raining, I have boots that I, I prefer to wear in the rain, plus prepared by my poncho. And by poncho, I mean uh, a trash bag with three holes. <laughs> and that is the best thing that works out here. Because when, when it rains and I'm documenting the river flows, the arroyos, and I'm planning and determining on where the next pond should be and how big the flows are, uh, I'm running and jumping, and, and, and y'all see, I think you've seen the videos of me running through the arroyos. And when I do it or when I do it with my sons, we're just ripping the, the, the heck whatever you're wearing. So you don't want to wear a nice raincoat. You don't want to wear a nice poncho. You need to wear something that gets ripped up running through thorns, jumping over rivers, not being able to walk in certain paths that you can throw out or use as a trash bag. Everything out here we reuse, and most of those ponchos get reused as a trash bag to get stuff out here back to town. Um, but, but but that's kind of how my day starts. Coffee, plan, weather, and then, then I get started with the day. And usually the dogs, the chickens, <laughs> something breaking just changes the priority. But that's okay. Out here it is, it is exciting. So uh, I'm going to get to it today. Uh, I got a lot of things I got to do today. I do, I do got to get some water. Uh, I'm still getting water uh, from a distance, unfortunately. Um, you know, but this is the water year where, you know, we're, we know how to make dams and we're making them, um, and we're able to pump the water to the ponds, but on the weekends, uh, have to have a different method of getting water. So until we are sustainable on water, uh, which I'm hoping will be this year, I do grab water, which means the trailers like to break. I've got two functioning trailers now. All three were broke like a week ago. Uh, and I just did the plan this morning to, to fix the next one, the third one. Because uh, the dogs have a pond that they love. It's been real hot, so their pond is getting kind of low, so I want to top it off. But we are possibly getting rain tomorrow, so i got to work on the ducks uh, for the greenhouse and the ducks for the shed and the, well, the ducks for the little greenhouse as well in preparation to collect as much water as possible. Okay. Well, this has been like a 15-minute video already. I'm not trying to put too much in, but my day pretty much is the same day I had in corporate America. I wake up, I get my coffee, I start planning what I got to get done for the day, and I go out and get as much of that done as possible, and whatever I don't get done falls into the next day. And, uh, yeah, I try to be organized as I go about it. So, anyway, uh, I'm going to get to it. And uh, if I run into anything interesting today, I shall post it. Uh, I think I still have some unposted videos from yesterday. Oh, and I didn't give you a follow-up. So the truck is fixed. I've got her uh, put the strut on there, got it out of the desert. Um, 
apparently that truck had a like i guess a two inch lift on it <clears throat> they have lifter plates i believe that's what it is underneath the strut if i'm saying that right so the truck's a little wonky <laughs> which is okay it cuts into the wind better <laughs> so it's a little wonky and so i need to put the lift the riser plate under there but i got these three longer bolts or a different strut to make that work uh but that's not something that i need to do right now so you know once again you you know when you live on a priority list you want to make sure that the priority is at the top and the truck doing that isn't that much of a priority 90 percent of the driving i do is on the ranch so it's not out on the road so i'm not worried about that um so the truck is good yeah but it's going to have to have a long-term fix and I'm, I'm not sure what that's when that's going to happen uh, i either need to replace the strut that i put on the emergency strut to get it out of the bad spot it was in uh or i need to replace the other side and that's going to determine on if i want to go for a higher lift use the same lift or have no lift and out here you want to have lift if you're driving around like when i first came here i had my suv mm -mm. <laughs> no baby i didn't know it's not gonna work and that's what one of the ranchers told me you want to get yourself a nice pickup truck with a nice rise a good lift you, if you can get eight or 12 inch above what's out here you can pretty much get into a lot of the areas as long as you avoid the mesquite the mesquite will pop any tire that you that can that you can make i have a friend that does a road drives a heavy piece of equipment and even he is scared to drive over mesquite mesquite are incredibly horrible in fact i show you one of the thorns and i get out of here uh blah, 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 blah. so no so the truck is good to go you want to get yourself a pickup truck uh so you can get in most spots but you're still going to have to avoid mesquite and i've had ocotillo pop tires as well if you ask me how many tires have i flattened and popped out here i will say i don't have any idea no clue all i know is you always want to have a tire plug kit with you and get used to it until you've got nice clear roads or until the wind comes in and blows more mesquite <laughs> into your path but see the thing about mesquite is that these are the thorns that come off of them so the biggest one you know i think here is about six inches we're probably that sucker right there but the other the others on the other side that branch form a tripod so when your truck rolls over it it braces itself to make sure the thorn goes in the tire i mean that's not what it's trying to do but that's what actually happens or the side where uh, side uh rail of your tire sidewall um why did i go through all of that oh just to say yeah you know i, I had that suv and she's still out there uh in fact i need to go ahead and start her and keep her keep her going but um again there's a difference between living out here and thriving out here you want to get the equipment that allows you to thrive out here um a lot of the suvs just don't have what it takes and that, and i didn't want to hear that when i first heard it but that is just a fact a lot of them are made on car chassis they're made for luxury and riding out here is rough terrain um if you don't have true true off-road tires and a true off-road vehicle uh you're going to run into a lot of trouble and you don't want to spend so much time fixing things as you do building um uh, uh a place that you can thrive and be happy in all right so that's about it um for this video i'll do a series of up, upgrade or update videos to try to show everybody where we are with everything like the shower and the kitchen and the bathroom and um, even the power system i've done upgrades on the last year all the ponds and dams i might document them all separately because they all have separate kind of separate designs but uh anyway 
This is Gerard doing my part of Green in West Texas. I'm going to feed the koi and get started with my day. Because, oh no, I'm not going to feed them. They're not looking at me like I'm crazy. Usually when I come down the steps, they look at me like I'm crazy, but they're not. They're just chilling. They've already eaten this morning, so they're good to go. This is how I do a lot of my propagation. The sugar cane is actually growing pretty good outside. The best one is in the uh, aquaponic system. There's mint over there. I think this is tomatoes. I'm just rooting them. Sometimes I forget about them, plant them around the pond. Um, but anyway, I'll show you more of that later. Y'all have a wonderful day. Let's get it. It's always something that happens out here. There's never bo a boring day out here. It's Gerard. Catch y'all later. All right. It's always really interesting to hear what people are having to go through when they are out dealing with a much more natural environment on a day-to-day -day basis. I come from a pretty rural area, and there are a lot of SUVs and everything there, but it's definitely true. When you go out into the wild, if you try to take a lot of the vehicles that are considered SUVs, which to me implies an outdoor vehicle, they're not very useful. We're going to be buying a new vehicle soon, and we're in the city right now, but I'm always aware that I can be going outside of the city, so I don't want anything with a very low profile. I'm not going to be able to get something like what Gerard has got out there in to the Texas desert. I'm not going to get a full-size truck, but I'm not going to get one of the SUVs that is almost as bad as a low-profile car. Some of them are worse. You want to look at not only where the very front of your vehicle and the rear of your vehicle meet the ground, but you also want to look in the middle. A lot of these SUVs have parts of their undercarriage that go lower than the front and rear end of the vehicle, and that'll get you high-centered and do a lot of damage to your vehicle. So definitely, we have to think about our clothing and our vehicles. All of that changes the more we interact with nature. All right. There was one other article that I did want to go over with you guys before we close out for the day. We talked about how to naturally amend your soil for your house plants to keep that soil viable. This is an article that talks about what to do with your soil when you're done with a house plant. And it says, you should recycle the potting soil from your dead plants. Stop tossing your potted soil away with the dead plants. You can save it and revive it for next year. And, of course, if there's nothing wrong with the plant and it doesn't put off any sorts of natural toxins, it doesn't have any mold or mildew on it, why not add that plant to your compost as well? In a corner of your local nursery, hidden way in the back, is a worker dumping out an endless stream of dead plants into a pile and tossing the plastic planter into a dumpster. What a waste there as well, right? I just can't stand plastic planters. It looks a little like what you do at home, tossing planters at the end of the season full of dead plants, with one notable exception. The nursery soil is being recycled. You can do the same thing and save money by recycling your potting soil from year to year with a simple are a few simple steps. Why you normally don't reuse potting soil. All soil is soil, right? And this is why I do so badly with indoor plants. I absolutely believe in the interaction of all the natural elements, including 
the decomposing of the plant life, which brings in the bug life that is a part of that decomposition process. You can't mimic that in a potted plant. Unfortunately, there's some nuance to that, meaning all soil is soil, right? The soil we buy in stores is made up of many components, including compost, topsoil, which that means they've stolen it from somewhere else, right? Cocoa coir or peat and various nutrients. Some soil is formulated to go outside into a large garden bed. That soil wouldn't work very well in a small pot because it can't retain moisture and needs more nutrients for the plants. So the soil you buy for your potted plant, potting soil, has additional components to retain moisture as well as slow-release fertilizer, another reason why I don't care for potted plants. At the end of the season, that soil, as you've probably noticed, is hard as a rock, in large part because there is no bug activity, and refuses to take on water. Also, the nutrients are depleted. So nurseries always advise that you completely upend your planters and refresh that soil by breaking it up and giving it new fertilizer. So why not just buy new potting soil? They're saying mainly cost. I'm saying mainly stop wasting, right? Like every other sector, gardening costs have risen dramatically in the last four years, prompted not only by the recession, but also by the sudden pandemic surge of gardening. Additionally, or additionally, each bag of potting soil means more plastic waste and just having to haul a bag of potting soil home. There's some money lost in that you're literally throwing out soil that would be perfectly usable if you take a few steps. How to recycle your potting soil. First, find a location where you can keep a pile of soil. It can be an area of your yard that can accommodate a literal pile, or you can use a composter or even a pop-up yard bin. At the end of the season, you'll take off the planter and recycle it if you can. Now, break up the soil and toss it into the pile, plant and all, yay, so long as the plant is not diseased in any way. If the plant shows, shows sign of disease, toss that sucker in the trash, not the city composting bin. No one else wants your diseased compost either. Wet your compost down and leave it over a season. The plant matter will decompose, which is the point of compost, infusing your soil with nutrients again. It might attract worms, which is great. Occasionally, you should mix it up with a shovel or composter. At the end of the season, you can get in there, pull out some completely workable compost, and use it again either in your outdoor beds or in your potted plants by taking some out, taking a good look at it, and seeing if it needs vermiculite or another similar water retention additive. If you're unsure about using it for your potted plants, Take some into your nursery and they can advise you. You'll also want to add slow-release fertilizer to the mix like osmocote. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that chemical word right. Some people screen their compost, meaning they literally shake the compost out over a screen, which acts like a sieve you'd use in your kitchen, wetting through a uniform, finely screened compost. But that's really not necessary. And so I think that there are some other things in there that might not be fully necessary. I think that if you work towards a soil that you allow plant matter to decompose, you keep the ground cover going, you help to further or introduce the healthy fungi that's there, the bug life comes more and more back to your soil, I believe that you will need very little, if any type of chemical fertilizers at all, 
and that any kind of fertilizing you want to do, you can probably accomplish primarily through natural means, such as we discussed earlier, as well as things like worm casting. All right, everybody, that pretty well wraps us up for today. We have about two more minutes left. I hope you all enjoyed this in-depth, very literal pun intended, soil coverage. I hope that when you look at soil, you see a little bit more than you used to. And I hope that many of you go out and attempt to start interacting with your soil more and more. If any of you are interested in going over this topic and all of the natural topics that are a part of rewilding ourselves, please make sure to join us on Collectively Rewilding. Our main platform is through Mighty Networks. You'll just go onto the Mighty Networks platform or app, search Collectively Rewilding, and we still, for a limited time, offer a free membership. Content creators' memberships will always be free, so if you'd like to join as a content creator, please join us. We're all about any, tour, uh, any sort of natural topic. Please provide some new variety, whether you see what we're already doing and we have some of it or not. We'd love to see your material, and we'd also love to have you as one of our beta test members. We're prepping to launch fully in the spring. There's so much in there going on already. We have multiple content creators posting. We cover, uh, cover a variety of other natural content creators, and we're always looking to increase the types of natural topics that we're covering. One of the newest topics that you can be looking into currently on Collectively Rewilding is restoring your gut health. Through Collectively Healing, you'll be working with Misty Foles, and she has done such in-depth work on this. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Collectively Rewilding. <laughs>